VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the show. It's Wednesday, the 5th of July. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, David Williams. He's producing the program. Let's get at it. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. As we stare down a pretty sticky day in the metro region. Anyway, I guess the Humidex, somewhere in and around 30 sometime this afternoon. So, yeah. One of the things that the Americans do on the 4th of July, Independence Day, is the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. You know, it's one part impressive and an equal part disgusting. I mean, this guy, Joey Chestnut, you probably know who that is. He's the world record holder in this hot dog eating contest, but get a load of this. So you not only have to eat the hot dog, you have to eat the bun. Now, you can separate the dog from the bun, but you have to eat an equal amount of both. So yesterday, inside of 10 minutes, Joey devours 62 hot dogs. I mean, it's really quite something. And, I mean, if you look at him, he's not like some big, massive guy either, right? So 62 hot dogs in 10 minutes. On the women's side, Miki Sudo, 39 and a half dogs for her ninth consecutive. And for Joey Chestnut, that was his 16th record-breaking win at the hot dog eating contest. Uh, all right, a bit of a more positive note. want to say good morning and congratulations for to the winner of this year's Morrison Scholarship. We annually have a conversation with Ben Sparks about his mother and the creation of the Morrison Scholarship. This year goes to Jill Squire from Gonzaga Vikings. She's a Gonzaga Viking, so she's going to be studying International Bachelor of Arts at Memorial University, majoring in political science. Congratulations to Jill Squires. I don't know if you're watching any ball. I was having a hard time getting to sleep last night, so I did indeed watch a bit of the Toronto game visiting the Chicago White Sox. Guerrero Jr. with a home run. He's 13th on the year. He's starting to get his mojo going a little bit on the power side. But for baseball fans, help me understand how the opening day starter, a finest for the Cy Young last year, Alex Manoa, of course, had zero stuff. He was getting battered in the majors and, of course, walking people hand over fist. Sent down, had a terrible outing in one of the Florida leagues, gets bumped up to double A, has a decent outing. Now he's coming back up to face the major league hitters. Anyway, I don't quite get it. And congratulations to uh, Jason King who's a fine fella, terrific hockey player. Of course, he was drafted by Vancouver back in 2001, appeared in 59 National Hockey League games over three seasons with the Canucks and the Anaheim Ducks. Most recently, he was part of uh, some three seasons as the assistant coach in Vancouver. He was a coach and a player with the Ice Caps, of course, director of hockey operations for a year. He's now got a new gig. He's going to be assistant coach for the Minnesota Wilds. so congratulations to Jason. Fine fella. All right. You never know what calls are going to pique the interest of the listener and consequently maybe more calls or emails at least on it. And so I called her yesterday about the woeful condition of highway signs here in the province. And he's not wrong. Now he said, you know, to modernize the, maybe the potential for digital signs. But even if we just repair and replace the ones that are in these sides of the road, but even some of them, not very clear as to what they're actually directing you to. So we could do better. It's one thing if you live here and familiar with the area and consequently can navigate your way to one community or another, one landmark or another. But for the visitors, it must be pretty confusing out there. So Daryl is absolutely not wrong. After his call yesterday, 
We were flooded with follow-up calls and emails from people saying the exact same thing. And they've got friends in who are tourists, and they would get some directions from their buddies about how to get to one place or another. But then when they were going to use not only the directions given by their friend, but relying on the signs on the highways and the byways, and were ultimately confused. And consequently, maybe missed or added some additional time to their travel to get where they were going. But anyway, I think that's a fair comment uh, by Daryl and an interesting issue. Also in the world of travel, I don't know how many people have made their way to the province this summer as a tourist, but are basing their travel around come from away. So if you've ever seen it, I'm not generally one that is a big fan of the stereotypical Newfoundland Labrador type of stories and some of the vernacular chosen and the accents butchered and what have you, but Come From Ways is absolutely lovely. So as you know, they're bringing that Broadway production to Gander's Arts Culture Center. 37 performances, all sold out. So that is going to be great for the area. I wonder what the pressure looks like on the surrounding area, Gander included with Airbnbs or uh, traditional B&B and the hotel room bookings and what have you. But good news there. And there's a distinct Newfoundland and Labrador flair to this production. So, of course, Mike, Michael Rubinoff, who is a big part of the horsepower behind this production, and writers David Hine and Irene Sankoff. It's been running for about 10 years. It was a runaway Broadway smash hit. And of course, it was in London in the West End, Australia, and various places around the world, but finally gets to make its way here. I wonder how many locals are going and how many people have come to the province specifically for it. And regarding the flair of the province involved in the production, Gillian Kylie, one of the most noted uh, arts contributors, director, producer in the entire country, is behind this edition of Come From Away. Katrina Bromley will indeed be starring in this production. It's not necessarily a Broadway type of theatre, but they're quite pleased with the vantage points from all the seats and making sure that you get a Broadway caliber production if you're going to go see Come From Away in Gander. I think that's it's going to be awesome. And I wonder how many people tried to make their way here via Air Canada. What's going on with Air Canada? So we talk a lot about frequency of routes and direct flights and all those types of things and the prices. But over the Canada Day weekend, Air Canada delayed or cancelled almost 2,000 flights. 52% of their scheduled flights were delayed or cancelled. WestJet, not the same thing, or Air Transit or Flair Airlines. Air Canada says that they're about 90% of pre-pandemic traffic. They also go on to say they have more employees than they had in the summer of 2019, yet they have this pop-up on the busy travel holidays. Basically, with the implication of the international flights that Air Canada has and any hiccups there, and their schedule is so jam-packed. And of course, if there's a mechanical problem, no backup planes. If there's a problem with the crew, no backup crews. So the Air Canada woes are right back to what we saw at Pearson in particular last summer and some of the other holidays uh, surrounding Christmas and what have you. But Air Canada, if you were impacted, I'm curious as to how the interaction went with the airline because, hey, you sold us the ticket. Next thing, it's incumbent on you to ensure that my flight gets there. Now, of course, there's going to be delays, and travel can be a real pain in the neck, but 52% of the flights over the Canada Day weekend delayed or cancelled by Air Canada? I don't know. All right, I heard Jolene in the uh, newscast talking about warnings in the carbon air area, some nuisance in a gray van has been approaching young people asking if they want to have sex those become difficult conversations to have with your children none of us want to be in the business of scaring the daylights out of our kids but you know the rcmp of course encouraging parents to have those conversations that type of warning just put it out there because obviously we don't want the next headline to be that someone got in one of these vans and was assaulted or worse 
Heard Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy talked about this. We'll stick with the, uh, for transportation and driving in this case. And it's the whole concept of, of distracted driving. We all see it every single day. No trouble to pick it out for a variety of things. And most notably is looking down into your lap at your phone. Everybody knows that people are doing it. So there's a group called the Travelers Canada Distracted Driving Risk Survey Organization. They say 33% of Atlantic Canadian drivers admit to participating in risky driving. That's up 9% from 2022. Here's where it becomes extremely difficult to understand how people think about getting behind the wheel and a couple of hands on the steering wheel and looking down the road versus at the radio, noodling around with your buddies, putting on makeup, eating a hot dog, looking at your phone, whatever the case may be. Here it goes. Nine in 10 drivers said they would change their behaviors if they or their loved ones were involved in an accident caused by distracted driving. If you think that it's going to take you or one of your loved ones to be involved in that type of accident before you change your risky behaviors behind the wheel, that is a bizarre thing to admit out loud. You know, maybe, just maybe, if more people thought, well, if someone who belonged to me was in one of these accidents, then I would stop doing it. Maybe that's just a clear indication to stop doing it before. You have to be called by the RCMP or the RNC, or they knock on on your door to give you the bad news. Anyway, let's keep going. I'm going to talk about the registered nurses deal. We don't know the details. It's a tentative agreement. It's gone out to the 5,800 members for their ratification. But a couple of curious things. So, of course, they've got a lot of problems. Work-life balance, recruitment retention, the numbers on the casual list versus the full-time permanent, the travel agency nurses up and down the line. But here's something that jumps off the page. So Yvette Coffey, the president of the group, the union, says that this is a good deal. And we'll see if her members agree. But go on to talk about the rate of pay and parity across Atlantic Canada. So we don't know the numbers, but apparently, if you read between the lines, this deal indicates some sort of parity. But here's the problem. So they just negotiated a new deal on Prince Edward Island. The unions in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia are shortly heading to the bargaining table as well. So the parity that may have been negotiated here might not be parity in the coming months, posing this problem. When province to province and territory to territory are struggling in the healthcare delivery world, a lot of it to do with a, a kind of an antiquated system where we simply react after you get sick versus do more to keep you well, and the human resources. So what's happening is going to be a massive problem across the country. I don't know what the answer is, but we've got to try to figure out something. If it's simply going to boil down to a bidding war, then the richest provinces will be ahead of the game, able to lure, attract, or incentivize healthcare professionals from doctors all the way down to come to their province. That's not good. It's not good for anybody. Is it silly to think that there could be some sort of guideline, whether it be, you know, examining a metrics that can be applied so that there's you know, an equitable bidding war across the country. Incorporate the cost of a home and the taxes paid and other cost of living issues from uh, British Columbia versus New Brunswick versus Manitoba versus Newfoundland and Labrador so that we have a ceiling that provinces can pay for one professional or another. Because think about it. It should not be reliant on the economic strength of your province for equal and equitable access to health care and the staff required for your healthcare needs, because that's the problem. It jumps right off the page. If the parity struck by the registered nurses union here is all of a sudden lagging behind Nova Scotia and New Brunswick a year from now, then we're right back to where we began. And more and more money thrown at healthcare has been proven not to be the answer. Don't take it from me. Just look at the provincial budget year over year. We spend 
near $4 billion on healthcare, yet so many people don't have a family doctor. We lead the league in some of the chronic illnesses. You know, so there's got to be something else to it than simply money, and a bidding war just exacerbates an already growing problem. All right, a couple of points of clarification for those of you checking your bank account to see if the grocery rebate has shown up. And we've broken down the numbers in the past. So, of course, some 11 million low to modest income households will get this rebate. It is some short-term relief, even though a couple hundred bucks doesn't go very far in the grocery store. It does nothing to talk about the stubborn fluid inflation, and there's lots of contributing factors too. But here's where some people might feel like they got left out, and in essence, they will be. So you might qualify for the GST rebate, but you might not qualify for the grocery rebate, and here's why. And this is confusing, and there's no rationale offered by the federal government as to why this is the way it is. The grocery rebate is calculated using your 2021 income tax return. GST rebate, of course, based on your 2022 tax return. How was that even considered? I mean, whether or not you earned a little bit more in 2021 versus 2022 and missed out by margins to qualify for GST, it doesn't change the prices in the grocery store. No, you know, it's highly unlikely that some of the 11 million moved from a really poor or modest income one year to a much more robust, lucrative income another year. Of course, it does happen. People move up the, the chart or they get a new job or they get promoted, whatever the case may be. But that's quite bizarre. So you may get your grocery rebate thinking that, well, the GST is coming. I know I qualify for that. But you might not qualify for the grocery rebate, which is really bizarre, to say the least. How are we doing on the phone there, Dave? I'm going to keep banging away at this one because, look, the whole issue regarding food in the country I don't know why we don't talk about it all the time, but let's keep going. So there was a House of Commons Committee on Agricultural and Agri-Food, and they've got a bunch of recommendations that they forwarded to the government. And one of them, and I think this is critically important, is if we hear from folks like Second Harvest, they're a food rescue organization, and if they tell us, based on their surveys and the work they do across the country, that 58% uh, the 58% is the amount of all food produced, lost, and waste in Canada every single year. Almost 11.5 million tons of edible food goes to the landfill. And a big factor in that is those bloody best-before dates. So if you hear from professors at universities across the country, including a lady named Kate Parizeau, professor at the University of Guelph, and her focus discipline is food waste. The best-before dates have very limited use. If it's something based on nutrition, such, like, such as baby formula, then the best-before date is required. So basically... The government just leaves it up to industry to slap a best before date on it. When in fact, the vast majority of stuff that we look at and oh, best before, it's tomorrow, maybe eat it today. Oh, it was yesterday, I'm throwing it away. There's gotta be a better way. And you know, one of the examples used in the news story is, you know, the cellophane wrapped three peppers of various colors for tonight's goulash. For starters, no need to have the cellophane on those things. But we're just letting the industry dictate how many people would behave. You know, so Ottawa absolutely should look at this. Can you imagine if we simply had a better understanding of what that best before, which does not mean bad after, what that really meant? We could make, just even if we slashed in, what, 25%, 50% of those 11.5 million tons of edible food that we just throw away ends up in Robin Hood Bay. So Ottawa urged to look at it, and as they absolutely should. All right, a couple of quick ones. So had a call late in the program yesterday, long-time listener, first-time caller, painting this picture. So this is about the $157 million oil to electricity incentive program. 
So you had to have consumed X amount or liters of oil last year and have the bills to reflect it. But there's, this was the scenario as painted by the caller. Okay, I just bought a home two weeks ago. And of course, because of that, I don't have oil bills from last year. Maybe it's my first home. And in this case, it was. His 19-year-old daughter managed to save up for a home. Bravo. But she doesn't have the bills. So if government's incentive is to encourage people to make said transition, then what about that example? And or folks with baseboard heaters or whatever the case may be, some flexibility required. So we did indeed, as promised, went to the minister's office to talk about that example. They said they will work with that person, which should mean that that person will qualify for any type of support to move off to mini splits or central heat pumps or electric furnaces or boilers, whatever the case may be. So I would not give up if I was you and you're in that same or similar situation. I would absolutely apply and work with the department to avail of said subsidy money or incentive if you're so inclined. So that's what the minister's office tells us. And on that front, look, Regardless of where you stand on using fossil fuels or alternative forms of energy, whatever the case may be, electrification is coming fairly quickly. Government policy and incentive programs and pots of money is all fine and dandy, but unless we, at the exact same time, concurrently move into understanding what transmission looks like, we're going to have some people who are, we're going to have systems that are just overworked, under, you, under we won't have enough transmission capacity and maybe the electrical engineers to ensure that with all of these pots of money that we're working towards the transmission required for the electrification that's happening. And it really doesn't matter what your position is as an individual on any of these things. It's happening. The numbers of electric vehicles are growing. Electrifications of buildings is happening. These transition monies are being doled out the door. People are making the move. So regardless, once again, you, your whole stance on any of these energy-related matters, if it's happening, we have to be prepared. It doesn't really seem we are. And on that front, you know, talk about renewables. The RCMP have now opened a criminal investigation to the flash fire explosion at the uh, Combi Chance Refinery. Of course, seven seriously injured and one man dead. So the initial investigation said there doesn't seem to be any criminal negligence at play. But since then, in further interviews, they have now filed they are going to proceed with an investigation into criminal criminal negligence, causing those injuries and deaths. That's really something. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. We're kicking it off talking about snow crab. I don't really know what percentage of the total allowable catch has been landed. The hopes was that the entirety, which I think is 54,000 metric tons, would indeed be landed. 54,000 metric tons would be landed. There's some thought that might not get there, but Mario is a crab harvester. He kicks off the program right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. A caller speaking to David Williams says that the driving conditions west of Bellevue are terrible. It is extremely foggy, so pay close attention to what you're doing in that area or wherever you're driving this morning. Let's begin on the top of the board. Line number one, Mario, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. It's foggy everywhere. It's morning here, boy. I would think so. Yes, it is. No, Patty, I'm calling you about an update on the crab fishery. Uh, since last time I talked to you, I was I got it on board on the 14th of June. I got one drip in since the fish we started, and that's the only time I got out. And but this is solely based on the uh, trip limits or weather, or why are you only been out once? Yes, trip limits. Yeah. Okay. The company refuses to let us go fishing, and the day is the 5th of July, and there's absolutely no one to talk to. You can forget about calling anyone. 
the union is ugly to call them, well, the government is ugly to call them because the government is running the show. They're letting the processes do whatever he wants to do. But uh, this is the worst year I was, I was about fishing. I'm fishing now, this is 32 years. This got to be the worst one. How much of your quarter do you got left in the water? I got 11,000 pounds. Oh, significant. Left in the water. And uh, Jeff Lawler was on the broadcast there, I think it was uh, Thursday Pass. I think it was on, he was on there. And he was talking about the fisheries going really well and most people were getting a trip a week and stuff like that. Well, <laughs> here's I with one trip since the fishery started on the 14th of uh, June. So I don't know what kennel he's looking at because my, my kennel I got uh, seven days in a week. So it's, it's unreal by what's going on. It's unbelievable. Yeah, and it certainly wasn't helped by six weeks of a tie-up either because now everyone wants to get out as quick as can and take advantage of good weather, get their catch out of the water. And, of course, the plants seem to be bursting at the seams, but that doesn't matter to you. You've got a, an individual quarter you want to land. This is uh, information from Ryan Clary, which I appreciate. I was wondering how much of the crab has been landed. And according to DFO, £68 million of the £120 million quota for this year has been landed. So still a long way to go. Yes, it is, yeah. But uh, the crab paddy has landed, has landed with the big boats. Oh, yes. I've No doubt like, they've certainly landed their fair shake. Like the big like the big, like the big boats is going and coming like all the time, the same fellas. And here's we, tied under the water, not allowed to go fishing. And it's unbelievable what's going on. And it falls back on no one in the government. That's who it falls back on. That's who it falls back on. The government, they won't let the white side buy us in to buy no crab. They won't, for, they won't give out no more processing license, but still and all, they let those companies buy and buy and buy, and, and, they, and regardless, I they stockpiles it. And then, on the end of the day, the same government will pay people to go on the plant from the provincial crowd and pick through the crab, and they hears away thousands and thousands of pounds because it's spoiled. Like, it's unbelievable what's going on. Yeah. I so listening. So the whole concept of outside buyers is an interesting one, right? So people float that when they were talking about the price per pound. Even though there's no real reason to think it would be that much more paid price per pound by an outside buyer, but what it would absolutely allow for is for you to have landed more of your crab yes, because uh, you'd have another option to sell, of course. I completely understand. Yes, there'd be more competition. There's all competition here in the province. You've got three or four companies that run the whole show. That's what's going on. I bet you, if you were this morning, if you were to put it on the air, I put it on the fishman's forum there, and, and no one ever said, I bet you that you won't find one person in this province that only got one trip made up to snow crab since it opened. I bet you won't find one person. Everyone here in, uh, everyone like fishing at a baby bird and surrounding areas here in the inshore fleet, uh, most of them I got three trips landed. That's what they got. I got one. Like it's just unbelievable what they're up to. It's been a rough season, regardless of how you slice it for the snow crab uh, fishery. No doubt about it. There's a lot on Minister Lovelace's table. His second go-around as the Minister of Fisheries, he's got to figure out this price issue because that really did put additional pressure on all hands, harvesters and processors alike this year. So if that's all about fixing the price-setting scheme and or having a better approach to trip limits, whether that means the allowance of outside buyers during this stressful time for harvesters, I don't know, but something's got to give because it's certainly broken. Yes, Paddy Boy, it is. But uh, I don't think he's going to do much. You know, but he done last time he was in the Minister of Fisheries. He was the one that let Royal Greenland in the province. 
So the fate in here is very, is very small. And the government is not going to step in and do nothing because they're letting the companies run the fishery. And they got this cartel going between the three or four big companies running it. And uh, they're just running the show. And everyone will pay it off. That's all that's going on with it all. They're paid off, is that what you said? Yes, paid off, paid off. That's what's going on. The union will pay it off and the government will pay it off. Like, you, know, you take all the MHAs here in the province. Like, you take my MHA, Steve Crocker. His district runs from Moidaway in Trinity Bay, uh, right down on the right down on the south side of Trinity Bay and up to uh, Bristol Thorpe on the north side of Exception Bay. I don't know if you would find a community on that route that haven't got an inshore fishermen in it. And where's he too? There's not a word out of him. There's no good to phone, you won't get a hold to him. And he's probably there for the people of his district. Same way with all them MHAs in the province. Like, it's unbelievable, like, what's going on. That'll tell you that the government has run the show, has given it to the merchants to run. There's not a sound out of them. If, it wasn't, if, it, if he wasn't doing it that way, all them for all them MHAs that you would hear them on talking about what's going on in the fishery. But no, they're not allowed to open them out up. They're all paid out to keep shut. That's what's going on. I've often wondered, and I've said this before, and uh, you know, uh, some politicians sort of get quite cross when I say it, but I don't, I don't care. I'll say it again. I wonder is some of the silence, whether it be from federal politicians or provincial politicians on the state of various industries, and most importantly, or notably, the fishery, is whether or not the silence is golden or it's because they really don't have a firm grasp on how the fishery works and how it should work. And consequently, as opposed to saying something that might paint them in a very negative light or to be branded as incompetent they choose to be quiet because i know look i don't pretend to know a lot about the fishery but i do know it's a very complicated industry with a lot of different moving parts and a lot of different so-called stakeholders but it's been so broken for so long you figure there'd be some moves there's been a couple of things that have happened right like that ridiculous lifo policy that went by the wayside it came out of nowhere and then it went away but other issues that we talk about every single year how the price is set how the quotas are allocated the favoritism of maybe big boats versus small boats the issues regarding bycatch and body up and all these things that we just simply can't figure out it's mind-boggling how we are still chasing our tail year after year species after species yes Patty. because to me there's none of them the quiet is now run that they haven't got a clue that's all that's wrong they just don't know nothing about it that's what like what's, what, what do a doctor know about the fishery here in the province like the premier they are now he was a doctor before now what yeah. do he know about the fishery he probably don't know the difference in a sculpt and a, and a crab. I, I don't know, but of course. Like anyway, yeah. Like it's unbelievable, like what's going on. And I'm getting frustrated, and like what else do you do? It's like the union in there. You can call in there, you can read in the phone, and there's no one in there going to enter it. Like, Jesus, like you get your check and you take the money out of your union does, and you, and, you, and you won't call you. Like, it's frustrating. That's what it is. I understand. It's unbelievable what's going on. I get the frustration, uh, and I can hear it loud and clear here this morning. Uh, anything else you want to say, Mario, on anything else in the fishery or, or anything under the sun before we say goodbye? Well, I look for someone who will try to wake up and try to straighten out something in some department. Now, I got a fellow in the fishery since St. John's. I'm going to phone now right away and try to get here on the go and see, see can he get any move on anything and try to get fishing. 
the shock and patty, Bob. What's going on? It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, there's a couple of things that were still on my radar that I'm trying to figure out. One is, of course, the continued ban on mackerel and bait fishing this year, but also for the crowd who go for the uh, northern cod in the Gulf. The moratorium last year, we still don't know for sure whether or not that continues this year or there's going to be some opening in some commercial fishery of that species. So I'm trying to figure it out. But I appreciate the time, Mario. Good luck with it. Let me know how it works out. Yes, I will, Patty. Okay, buddy. Okay, bye. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go to line number two. Good morning, Rosalind. You're on the air. Line number two, Rosalind. You're on the air. <laughs> Tough start. Dave, is, uh, is that pot up by chance? Let's go ahead and put Rosalind on hold. We'll try again right after this break. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the program. Let's try line two again. Rosalind, you're on the air. Hello? Hello. Oh, sorry about that, Patty. My God. No problem. I, I had you on speaker, and I didn't even hear you say hello. No problem. Well, <laughs> you're on the program now. I didn't hear the other one. I understand. <laughs> Anyhow, no, I uh, I just I told you a long time ago that I would update you on the Lighthouse Festival. Sure. That's coming up on the 22nd, and uh, I would love to see I said, I don't know how many people said, oh, I'd love to see Patty Daly show up. <laughs> but anyhow, it's the 22nd, and uh, we got a good lineup in bands. Bud Davish and his, and his sisters and Shani Ganock and a few of our locals that's really good as well. And uh, the tickets now at the door are $60 each. And uh, anyhow, we're hoping to see you. And in the meantime, and talking about the Lighthouse Festival, that's not the only reason I called you. We got a, a, a lady here in Kingscove. She's the oldest lady in Kingscove. She's 87 years old today, Bertha Keogh. And uh, she's still out driving around her car. Terrific. Well, happy birthday to Bertha. Uh, yes, God bless her, I say. But anyhow, and I'm telling you, she don't, miss, she don't miss a mass. If there's five masses in the week, she's to every one of them. She, she's a good, you know, it's a good churchgoer and smart lady, beautiful-looking lady as well. I thought I'd send that out to her today. Anyhow, Patty, God bless you, and hopefully you will... Uh, might be able to get down this way. You never know uh, where I might be at any uh, given time. Yeah, so I know. <laughs> just so people I to get around to visit all the all the concerts and everything. Is yeah. For sure. Thankfully, I get some kind invitations. Uh, but for people who are wondering, this lighthouse festival, this is out in Kingscove. Yes. Right. Yes, my darling. Yes, sorry about that in Kingscove. Yeah, we got a yeah, every year. Now we've had one and does really good. And we got a the farmer got a. a 50-50 draw on the goal for to be drawn on the same night, you could win $5,000. Well, I'll be close. There's uh, $5,000 a ticket, right? So they got that on the goal at the, you know, they got it on the goal now, but the draw will be on, uh, on the Lighthouse Festival on 22nd that night. So you got a good chance of winning $5,000, you know, if they get their 5,000 tickets so which is going pretty good, and I think they will make their sell them out this year for sure all hands love the 50 50 sounds like a yeah. time uh rosalind good luck with it you never know i might just be able to get out there but i'll wait and see what time presents oh good yes i hope you do and you know that's so nice to hear you back on the radio i miss you when you're gone because i listen to you every morning 
get out of news. I said, the only news we get is from Patty Daly. <laughs> <laughs> well. It's wonderful. That we really appreciate it. And I'm not the only one here in Kingscove. Most of the people listen to you, you know, down this way. So it would be nice. Yeah, it would be nice to see you for sure. I appreciate the Anyhow, you take care. God bless. And if we don't see you, have a good summer. You too, Rosalind. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Patty. You're have welcome. a good one. Bye-bye. Too. Bye-bye. Bye. You know, and in the world of lighthouses, I think there's something like 55 lighthouses in the province. Now, somewhere around half or less would actually be staffed by human beings. And in other provinces, they're lost entirely. I know in the province of New Brunswick, I don't know why I know this, so I read it one time, there's only one staffed lighthouse in New Brunswick anymore. Sort of interesting. Anyway, let's keep going here. Uh, let's go to line number two. Say good morning to Dr. Sevtap Savas. She's a professor, cancer scientist, and patient advocate at Memorial University's Faculty of Medicine. Good morning, Dr. Savas. You're on the air. Hi, Teddy. How are you today? Excellent today. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. Thanks very much. So we've talked in the past, and I think we spoke uh, leading into this uh, work that you were doing, this research. And, you know, we do know the cancer is unfortunately very common here in the province. The estimates that are somewhere between, somewhere around two and five residents will absolutely, will absolutely be diagnosed with cancer at some point. Now you've done some research into some misconceptions about cancer and what that impact or what that stigma might mean for people who are dealing with cancer and their family. What have you found? Thank you for this. So, yes, this is a study that we conducted, I think, uh, starting in 2019 in Newfoundland and Labrador population. Um, That was an extensive study, so we had three parts. In the first part, we asked our um, residents uh, with a history of cancer directly whether they ever felt stigmatized or discriminated uh, because of their cancer history. At this point, I want to explain what stigmatization and discrimination may look like in cancer. So stigma uh, can be explained as something, a negative and often unfair belief about someone or group of um, people. And, you know, stigma we do see in many different areas in our life. For example, drug users are stigmatized. Uh, Mental health issues are stigmatized. And in cancer, uh, cancer patients and survivors may also be stigmatized. But how can it manifest itself in cancer? For example, if people start uh, distancing themselves after your cancer diagnosis, this is a negative and unfair behavior, right? Or if they blame or put the responsibility on you, again, a negative and unfair um, behavior. So let me just take that one step further, because yeah. like in mental health, people will think that, well, there's something wrong with you and that yeah. you're not fit to be friends with or to employ or those types of stigmas, which are really quite damaging. In the world of drug addiction, same thing is you created your own problem. So are, is what we're saying here, for instance, someone gets lung cancer and people say, well, boy, he smoked a pack a day. It's, it's, yeah. it's his own fault. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, exactly. So okay. it's like, okay, there's something wrong with, is that something? So in cancer, stigma can happen exactly the same reasons that you say there is something wrong with this individual. And it's often, you know, unfair and negative attitude. So again, uh, for example, asking did you smoke is actually putting the blame and responsibility on the patient, right? So it's a negative and unfair because not everyone is smoking actually. Or making assumptions about the cancer patients, their abilities, their ability to make decisions, their ability for physical um, uh, activity and so on. Uh, in any way, you know, simply treating the individuals with a history of cancer different because of their cancer history and in a negative way. And uh, one thing about stigma is that it can also transition into discrimination. So this is more serious uh, behavior. 
or experience. And what does discrimination mean? It's, you know, reduce or uh, lost opportunities. For example, reduce opportunity to date because of because you know you had cancer in the past, or reduce opportunity to get promoted at workplace, or even find jobs. So all of these things, you know, the uh, negative um, labels attached to cancer and cancer patients, and what people make assumptions and misconceptions about uh, individuals and the disease itself, may all, you know. Um, extra burden the cancer patients and families. So, so what does this mean in real terms? So when you're the victim of stigma or misconceptions yeah. or discrimination, it of course will have potentially a mental toll, but what does it mean for people dealing with battling and getting treatments for cancer? Have we found that it further complicates or uh, reduces the, reduces their opportunity for recovery or what's the real life implication here? Right. For example, some of the participants in our study say that uh, they they couldn't get promoted at work. Some of them said, "Okay, I I was you know it was very hard to get a date after my cancer diagnosis, or so they said discrimination, oh. right? Or family members or others actually distance themselves. And one of the things that we found is that uh, we asked, for example, is it your friend, family members, coworkers, insurance companies, banks, etc., that actually stigmatize you? And it may surprise us, but we found that uh, almost 10% of the participants and say it was their friends. Their friends somehow <laughs> either disappeared from their lives or uh, interacted in, in a way that actually depreciated the individuals with cancer history. So this was really very interesting. Um, but there are, of course, others, like in terms of discrimination. You know, we directly ask individuals who discriminated you. So in one in seven participants say they felt discriminated because of their cancer. And most of the cases... Uh, Times this was because of the you know workplaces, co-workers, employers, insurance, bank, and loan companies, and so on. So this is what we learned in real life in Newfoundland and Labrador. But yeah. So in the world of trying to address it, you know, education is important, awareness yeah. is important, but then, of course, policy. It's one thing to create a policy that uh, disallows companies to be discriminatory based on someone's own health, whether it be a cancer diagnosis, a recovery, yeah. or otherwise. But yeah. in things like, which is also really important, is when your social circle crumbles and your friends are no longer there. That's human nature. How do we address that? Because we can do something about how you get hired or fired, but those other very personal relationships that might be compromised. How do we deal with that? Right. So I think the first thing first is to be able to talk about this, right, as we have we, we are doing right now. So thanks again for this opportunity. I think that's really important to voice cancer patients and survivors' uh, um, experiences like this and so that the others like France can also learn, you know, what's happening. I think education is one thing, but one thing we really need to understand is that, you know, is this the misconception that I'm feeling and this is affecting my behavior and attitude and interactions with the person that is diagnosed with cancer? And if so, what is it? Like, how, how can we actually find the common um, way? I'm telling you this because I know 99.9% of the case, individuals would like to support the individual diagnosed with cancer, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know anyone who is actually ha gets happy that someone gets such a disease, right? But so intention is there, but the behavior is not there. So, you know, I think the first thing is to understand that there is uh, acknowledged. And then the second thing we know from literature as well is that asking the individual affected by cancer how they would like us to be with them or interact with them. Do they want us to bring, you know, be with us or do they want a cave-in? Do they want extra support? 
Oh, so this communication will be key. Intention is there. Please communicate, friends. Please do not desert your friends. <laughs> and then, you know, everybody just just support the way that each individual affected by cancer wants it at that time. So this is the key. Did you find a difference inside the sample size for someone who has very recently been diagnosed in the early stages, the opportunity or the likelihood of recovery is higher than possibly someone who is at an advanced stage of cancer? Do they have different experiences? Oh, that's a great question. So, no, we didn't find, so first thing first, we didn't find any significant difference between those individuals who are recently diagnosed with cancer versus those who were diagnosed earlier, like uh, before and after five years kind of stuff. So there was no uh, difference in their experiences. So this tells us that, you know, it's been going on for some time. It's not something new, this stigmatization and discrimination. But we do find that in the second part of our study, we did find that uh, um, cancer affected individuals with certain, certain characteristics were at increased odds of experiencing stigma. As you pointed out, uh, one of the most interesting findings was that like the stage four patients, which is often um, known as terminal or advanced stage cancer, this is when the cancer is really progressed um, and exists in multiple parts of the body. So we did find that uh, when compared to, for example, stage one patients, which are really early cancer patients, their survival rates are higher and so on. Stage four patients felt more self stigma than stage one patients. But they didn't feel, for example, social distancing um, by others around them from family, friends, and so on. So that was a very interesting finding. And we think that uh, it can be interpreted in multiple ways, but we think that it's because, you know, because it's an advanced uh, late stage disease, I think the individual really blames themselves in stage four but they do have a lot of support from others, so they don't feel like uh, isolated or distanced by others. So that was one interesting thing. The other thing is, uh, of course, we found individuals diagnosed with cancer at younger ages. They are at increased risk of experiencing stigma compared to older individuals. And the other one was um, indigenous individuals uh, uh, felt that uh, people um, distanced themselves more than compared to, for example, white participants. But uh, I want to say that our numbers were very small, so this may need to be verified in further studies before you know we follow the fight. So these are some of the interesting findings. So yeah, uh, going back to your question, we do find certain um, individuals affected by cancer with certain features to uh, to experience stigma. Um, differently. I'm not going to ask you to guess as a researcher, as an academic, about what things may have changed because recruitment for this research closed in February 2020, so just before the pandemic made it to this province. Everything has changed since. The healthcare delivery system, uh, you you mentioned social distancing. I wonder, are you not only planning on expanding the sample size, but to in some form replicate this research because it'd be curious to know if things have worsened in this front because for most part, social interactions, interaction with the healthcare system, our understanding of healthcare, our belief in science has eroded in some form. So are you going to replicate this? Oh my gosh, you are you are like you are talking so scientific right now. I want to just you know hug, hug you. So as always, uh, yeah, we want we are working on it, and actually we have a current study building on this published study. So this time we want to really dig into the you know social and workplace experiences of cancer patients. This is a current study that we talked a while ago in your program as well. So we certainly are interested in 
learning more about social support and issues as well as workplace support and issues that our um, residents in Newfoundland and Labrador are experiencing. So if anyone is interested in, they can call my PhD student, 864-4618. So this is a new study. We hope that it will it is going to not only extend in terms of scope, but also will help us to replicate some of these findings. And that's Krista, right? Do I remember that properly? Okay, yes. Krista. Krista King, uh, she can be reached at uh, krista.king at mandacie. And again, the phone number I would like to give, uh, 709-864-4618, so that we can learn more and more recent experiences, and we will move from there. Uh, as always, really appreciate the time and the conversation, Dr. Savas. Thank you. Thank you so much, Pedro. Always a pleasure. Bye-bye. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye. As Dr. Sevtap uh, Savas, professor, cancer scientist, patient advocate at Mund's Faculty of Medicine. When we come back from this break, we're going to dance. Or at least we're going to invite you to say, let's dance. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the chief operating officer at the Terror Bruce Productions. That's Bob Hallert. Good morning, Bob. You're on the air. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Great to have you on the show, Bob. Talk about Let's Dance. Let's Dance is the newest and first musical since the pandemic from Terry Bruce Productions. We spent the last year locked away creating this amazing musical. We workshopped it and in, in at St. Lawrence College uh, last fall, and now we're we're unveiling it to the world with our first performance Saturday night at Holy Heart Theatre in St. John's. And we'll get to the fact you're taking it on the road to, I think, Halifax and Toronto, if I'm not mistaken, but folks in and on pop songs, some of the greatest songs. So it may never rain in Southern California, although it rains here. So this is all about the 60s pop? It is. The show takes place at a high school in 1963. You know, it was kind of just before the Beatles took over, just at the end of the the magic, you know, golden years of teenagedom, you know, the, the, the novelty dances and the birth of rock and roll, all that's coming together in this show. So this is a jukebox musical. It's a show not built on songs we wrote ourselves. We took some of the greatest hits from that era, combined them in an amazing story, and just created this fun evening full of, you know, great dance numbers, great singing, great music. There's nothing here that you will not like. Well, I mean, high energy dance is really great for the stage and for the audience. But how do you approach it when you're trying to ensure that it's attractive to a wide scope of uh, theater goers? So you don't have to have been old enough to put a nickel in the jukebox to play the Peppermint Twist. For folks who are younger, who do love the theater, this is right in their ballywick as well. Well, I mean, none of the songs uh, in this musical, not one of them was written before. Every Sorry, every single song in this musical was written before I was born. And probably you too, Patty. But the reality is, these songs are part of our collective soundtrack. You know, the songs we've been hearing on the radio and we've been hearing at parties, you know, since we were born. And they're, it's just great music, right? And because of that, you know, when you go to a musical like this, instantly you have that familiarity and you have that affection for the music. So right out of the gate, you know, you've got a stake in it. And the show is, you know, this is not this is not one of your shows full of big messages and sort of, you know, harsh issues. This is about a great night entertainment. Let's Dance is, is supposed to be fun, entertaining, a laugh, just to get you out of your problems, get you away from your worries, get you away from your concerns, and just have a good time. So as mentioned, it's going to open on the 8th of July here in the city of St. John's at the Holy Heart Theatre. How does it work to get your production here, first one since the pandemic, something like this on stages in Halifax and Toronto? Well, for us, I mean, this is, you know, years of planning. I mean, one of the things we did during the pandemic here at Terre Bruce was figure out, okay, what do we want to do? You know, so we've got a 
a half dozen musicals in, in various forms. We're finishing our own theater down on Ducker Street at the amazing Majestic. And, you know, we've been working with creative people, with actors, with venues and producers and presenters all across the country. I mean, the goal of Terra Boots Productions is for this to be a world-scale uh, theater company. And we have great ambitions and great expectations. So for us, this is the start of that journey. And it's a long planning. But, you know, I feel like somebody who's uh, put together a hockey team for three years and no one's ever seen them play. So for us, this is our, you know, this is our first chance to really step out on the stage and show us what, you know, show the world what we've got. And you, t- you talk about the work you're doing at the Majestic. Uh, any update, Bob, when the announcement was made of a, com- oh, pardon me, next year will be the Year of the Arts and for a variety of funding opportunities, but also the thought about a medium-sized theater somewhere in St. John's caught a lot of people off guard, including you, if I remember correctly. What's the status of those conversations? Well, that's, you know, I, I don't know what's going on with the government saying that whole thing caught us by surprise. And I, I don't feel, and I've heard nothing about consultations or reports or designs or anything subse- subsequently. But what, you know, that we can't deal with that. What we're doing is building a theater in St. John's. So we've taken the old Majestic, completely redesigned it, completely rebuilt it to make it accessible, to improve sight lines, to make it comfortable, just to make it a real modern theater experience. We've expanded the stage. We've changed the seating. We've created uh, entrances, exits on both floors. We've improved the washrooms. We're adding PA and lighting. So, like, this is going to be a brand-new theater. It's going to hold around 350 people. So it will really sit in that nice mid-range between uh, the LSPU Hall, which is quite small, and Holy Heart and the Arts Culture Center, which are enormous, you know. So we're really trying to find that, that sweet spot. Uh, the reality is most shows that go into those theaters can't sell anywhere near 1,000 seats, certainly not for multiple nights. So... We need to present an alternative that's kind of scaled to the business in St. John's, and that's what we're trying to do. And I figure we're about, or, you know, depending on the city of St. John's and their arcane and inexplicable inspection services, I'd say we're between four and six weeks away from opening that theater. That'll be exciting. The Majestic is an ideal place for this exact uh, operation. So for folks who want to see Less Dance, find out more about Tara Bruce, buy a ticket, where, what to, what do they do? They can go to www.terrabruce.com, or they can go to the Holy Heart of Mary theater website uh tickets are available for shows on july 8th 9th 11th 12th 14 15 16 they close on a matinee performance sorry a sunday night performance next weekend so there's lots of great seats still available uh the tickets are selling fast but you know you can still get in and see the show and i think you'll you know it'll be a lot of fun i mean we really built this show to be entertaining to be fun and we wanted people to come in and walk out with a smile on their face and Let's Dance is going to do that. Bob, I don't like putting people on the spot, but here it goes. So spoke to your former bandmate, Sean McCann, on the program last week, week before, I can't remember. Talk about 30 years of Great Big C and some of the uh, work that could possibly be done in the future, some sort of reunion. Where do you, where's your mindset on that? Uh, I have talked to McCann a few times, but, um, uh, you know, there's sort of there were sort of problems that had evolved in 2013, which led to us not... Uh, doing anything and you know we've gone to Sean with a few proposals to try to try to resolve those and they they haven't quite uh, we haven't quite managed to do that Patty so I find there's uh, what what Sean is saying he wants to do and what what we are able to do are uh, those two are not quite the same thing so uh, it's I know it's it's very frustrating to me uh, Patty like this is this is one of the greatest bands in Canada we had enormous live strength people love the band and love the music and for it to just be sitting in a shitty corner of Spotify is, is depressing. But, uh, you know, there are legal hurdles that I have to overcome. There's issues with how the band was structured and managed and the corporate ownership, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that were 
that frankly are big and they're and they're not ones that can be solved in sort of series of tweets, you know. So uh, coming to that point, I think we all, both myself and Sean and, and Alan Doyle, and, you know, other people like Murray Foster and Daryl Power and Chris McFarland who were in the band would love to play together again. I think it's important to all of us. But when that's going to happen, I don't know. Bob, good to have you on the show. Uh, break a leg with less stance. Good luck with everything, Terry Bruce. Thank you, Patty. We'll see you there. Take good care, buddy. Cheers. Bye-bye. It's Bob Hallett. He's the COO at Tara Bruce Productions. I'm looking forward to seeing what they've got uh, in store at the Majestic because that should be a sparkling uh, location for theatrical productions here in the province. So anyway, that's great. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, hopefully you're in the queue to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Rob, you're on the air. Top of the morning to you, Patty. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. How are you doing? Good, good. Yeah, I just wanted to, I heard you in your preamble there about the road signs and stuff like that and distracted driving. Mm-hmm. Um, the road signs, like, you know, most of them are taken out during the winter with snow plows going through, and they just blow the holes through them and tear them apart, and once they start getting torn apart, they get a bit of wind on them and then just obliterate it. And um, there's a... Because I've got a cabin up in Whitless Bay. And uh, so I, I come off from Holyrood and take the exit off onto Whitless Bay line. And for two years now, um, the snowplow had gone through and took the guardrail out all the way up the whole line, that whole exit. And there's still nothing been done about that. You know, I don't know if that's roads or transportation or who's. You know, but, uh, you know, stuff like that is there's nothing addressed to it. And it takes forever. Like you said today, like people getting, you know, turned around because they don't know they can't see the exits. Look, I mean, when there's damage, whether it be by a snow plow or anything else, you know, if we're talking about that exit, that's the province. You know, that stuff has to be replaced immediately. If the guardrail is there for people's safety, it doesn't matter how it got knocked off, whether it be a truck ran it over, a plow ripped it apart, they know it's done. There's a report, an incident report filed. If not, someone is quickly telling them exactly what's wrong and what needs to be done. I just don't understand the hesitancy, especially for uh, starting with uh, things regarding safety. You know, signage, maybe there's a priority, maybe down the priority list somewhat, but a guardrail is absolutely a safety issue you would imagine that would get replaced immediately or it should be yeah because yeah because it's a pretty steep drop off when you come up off that uh off ramp and um but the whole the whole and it's not just a little section of it it's the whole section of the whole off ramp and it's been down for two years and there's been no look of work or anything to be looked at and it's just you know it's just Okay, so they, you know, they got. I know they got a lot of money this year to do roads and stuff like that. I don't, I don't imagine that's part of it. But like that should have been looked at right after the season, of the snow season. And like I said, two years now, that's been gone. And if if anybody comes up and you know, you know, we get those flash freezes and stuff like that, and somebody coming off of that ramp, they're going right down over the over the bank. So, you know. That's something that needs to be looked at. Like some somebody's got to be getting on the ball a little bit more here and, and looking after this infrastructure. 
agreed. Because inside road work, it feels like, you know, a lot of patting themselves on the back for spending X amount of money on X number of kilometers of road. But road work includes a lot of things. The shoulder of the road, culverts, bridges, guardrails, signage. That's all got to be part of it, not just laying down blacktop. No, exactly right. Exactly right. So I'll leave that one there. And I just wanted to say about the distracted driving I heard you saying. And, and you were talking about you're going on people, you know, coming out of Tim Hortons and trying to find their food and stuff like that. And they're not paying attention and stuff like that. And, you know, reading, reading your crotch when you're uh, driving along and stuff like that. But I've, what I found around, around here out in CBS is that people with their dogs... Like, they've got their dogs just wandering around. They're on their lap, sitting out the window, driving with their dog in their lap. Like, that is the biggest distraction of anything. And you never hear anything of it. You're not wrong. Uh, everybody sees it all the time. And, of course, it's almost impossible to be completely focused on the road when you're dealing with a dog running around the front seat and in your lap and looking straight out over the steering wheel or out the window. You're right. It's 100% right. And we do know that people have that emotional attachment to their pets and treat them like they're their children. But if that's the case, you wouldn't let your 3-year-old run around in the front seat and stand on your lap while you're driving down the road. So that is another absolutely clear distraction. No, no doubt about it. You know, because I know in other provinces, um, you know, if you have your pet in your vehicle, that's fine, obviously, but they have to be strapped in just like a, a, a child does. They have to be on a harness and strapped into a seatbelt, you know, where they can't be running around and distracting people. And for their own and protection. That, yes. It's for their own protection. You want, you, you want your, you love your animal that much, you want to take it out, you know, protect it. It, it, you're not protecting it having it sitting on your lap you know no any sort of serious collision and the dog is standing on your lap then that dog stands a very high chance of coming out pretty battered not or not coming not out at all fair enough i mean i didn't want to say your dog is dead but it's quite likely if there's any type of serious collision and the dog is simply not strapped in and out on the front seat you're right you're 100 percent right yeah, no, no. I just wanted to throw that out there because I heard your preamble this morning, and uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I see this all the time too. So, but uh, let's get these road guys on the go here and get these guardrails, which is safety. You know, like if something happens and somebody goes over the bank over there, like that's a pretty steep bank over there off of Whitless Bay Line there, mm-hmm. and and um, you know, that should be that should be should have been corrected. Like, like I said, it's two years ago now. And it's a long time to wait. Done. Yeah, safety infrastructure has got to be at the very top of the priority list when we talk about the road work season. I appreciate the time, Rob. Thanks for the call. Okay, thanks, Patty. Take care. You too, man. Bye-bye. Bye. Again, just in case you didn't hear it off the top of the show, the issues and the numbers regarding distracted driving in the 2023 Travelers Canada Distracted Driving Risk Survey. It says 33% of Atlantic Canadian drivers admit to participating in risky driving. That's a 9% uptick since 2022. But here's the one that I just simply can't wrap my mind around, and it's quite something to admit out loud. Nine in 10 drivers said they would change their behaviors if they or their loved ones were involved in an accident caused by distracted driving. Nine out of 10 drivers said they would, be, they would drive less distractedly if they had children in the car. You know... There's something odd about that one. It's going to take someone belonging to you, someone you love, to be in a distracted driving collision before you stop being distracted behind the wheel. 
you know, you would think that school of thought would very clearly say, well, if I know my distracted driving or your distracted driving is posing a safety risk for me and my loved ones, then maybe, just maybe, we can stop doing that. I'll admit, when cell phones first became a thing and everybody had one, I absolutely did sneak a peek at my phone way too often than I should have. I don't do it anymore because I get really quite cross with, you know, walking down McDonald Drive, and I've said it on the program before. One afternoon, I was just walking from my neighborhood over to Kent's Pond, and while walking down the sidewalk on McDonald Drive, purposefully looking into the windshield uh, through my sunglasses, looking in the windshield to see how many people are absolutely distracted driving on the road. And it's unscientific, but it's only what I saw that one afternoon while I was purposefully looking for it. There was somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 50% of the drivers that day, that afternoon on McDonald Drive were absolutely doing something other than looking straight out the windshield down the road. That's a lot. You know full well, you yourself, if you're driving around wherever, especially if you're in the congested areas like St. John's or CBS, Paradise, Mount Pearl, whatever, you see it all the time. You know, you pull up to a red light and the light turns green and then nothing happens. Why? Because the person's not looking at the light or looking at the road. They're looking at their phone. You know, there's got to be a way to maybe use the do not disturb. So, like, there's people that text me and I'll reply to it. And their immediate reply comes back is, I'm driving. So they've used that setting on their phone to keep them from even uh, experiencing the temptation of getting their texts or whatever bings in social media, email or otherwise. So those distracted driving stats are really quite something. Uh, let's go and take a break. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Krista, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. I just wanted to uh, bring your listeners' attention to uh, the fact that I live in Holyrood, and uh, they're by the Hydro Road in Holyrood. On the weekends, I'm finding that there's a lot of uh, softball teams out in the road, and they're stopping traffic to receive money from vehicles for various fundraising things I assume that they need for their softball I, I think this is illegal to stop traffic and talk about distracted driving I'm afraid that one of these children because they're no more than 14 I'm afraid that they're going to get killed so I think that uh, we need to put something out there to let everyone know that this is not a safe way to receive fundraising money maybe a car wash or sell a bag of vegetables or something like that they shouldn't be doing it. It's obviously unsafe. And when you mention car wash, every now and then there's an organization, a team, or whatever the case may be, does a car wash in the old Antles Irving there on uh, Torbay Road. I thought I was, well, I, I was millimeters from hitting the young fellow who stepped into the road with the Bristol board sign asking me to go and get my car washed. I mean, we can see it going on. I know that they're all excited and trying to get as many people to stop as possible and make as much money as possible, but he stepped right into the road. A double lane road on Torbay Road uh, it scared the hell out of me, to be honest with you, and I just missed him. Well, these uh, children were in the middle of the road in Holyrood with signs and buckets stopping cars, receiving money, forcing you to give them money. And I mean, I don't mind giving a few bucks here and there, but the reality is, is that if I stop, is the car behind me going to stop? And then are we going to kill this child that's out in the road? And then the coaches are on the side in their vehicles watching all of this. Like, it's normal. I mean, you can't just stop traffic. Nope, you can't. It's illegal. Like, you'd, if, if anybody who had to stop traffic for any reason would have to have flaggers, 
multiple signs, notifications, allowing people to know that up ahead you have to slow. But for a child who's fundraising for a softball team, people need to get their lives together and figure out a better way to raise money for sports teams. Fair enough. I've been raising money for sports teams for decades here now. And, you know, I don't begrudge them the Bristol board sign to try to flag me in for a car wash or to tell me that there's a garage sale on some side street. I get all that. You know, people are doing what they can do. But please don't put yourself in any compromised uh, situation like standing in a roadway. And look, if, it's, if you put up the sign to say there's an opportunity to pull into the grocery store parking lot or one business parking lot just down the road here and here's what we're doing, fair enough. But Come on, coaches in particular, you know better. Absolutely, or if you don't know better, you should know better than to put your players or any children in that sort of dangerous situation. Wow. Yeah, that's it's extremely scary, the fact that they think that this is okay. I mean, this might have uh, flew back in the 70s before people had wear seatbelts, but uh, this is 2023, and children out on the road is uh, a no-fly zone for me. So thank you so much for putting it out there. I appreciate the time, Krista. Take care. Thank you. Bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Yeah, that young fellow who stepped into the road as I was approaching Antle Serving. Seriously, I was, I'm surprised that my side view mirror didn't hit him. Because not only stepped into the road, but then further reached out with the sign to get me to look. And I'm happy enough if I need a car wash. I'd absolutely prefer to pull into that parking lot and put some money into some sports team's pocket versus, you know, get a tank of gas up to SO and go through the drive through or what have you. But please, please, think it through before you do what Krista describes. Uh, let's go to line number one. Owen, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. How about you? Good. Not bad at all. I got a, no, I got a well, first-time caller actually to your show. Welcome. Um, got a little uh, beef, I guess, with uh, uh, some government bureaucracy that I've run into in the last uh, little while. Um, did my income tax on time? I think March 16th I sent it in, and got a review letter a little while ago that they're um, reviewing my medical expenses. I said, well, it's fine. I'll, I'll contact them and. So now they say, well, we need copies. I said, well, that's all sent in. They said, uh, well, we'll have to request a review of your uh, income tax. And uh, I said, that's fine. I said, how long would that take? I said, she said, well, 10 to 12 weeks, she said, we had to retrieve it from a different government facility. And I said, oh, I said, I said, I've had my income tax now since March. This is July. Now we're talking another 10 or 12 weeks. And I I just don't understand. <laughs> I don't know if you ran into anything like that before, or if it's... Well, I think if anyone's ever dealt with any level of government <laughs> looking to try to navigate red tape, the bureaucracy, and all the rest, it's not only frustrating, it's just incomprehensibly slow. Yeah, and like, and I, I try to do everything above board, and, you, you know, a little while ago, if you had a heartbeat, you got a government check for COVID money. I mean, we worked through all that and no issues and didn't receive anything from the government or whatever, but, and you try to do stuff above board and this is the kind of stuff you got to deal with. It's just, you know, I mean, I'm not down and out. I mean, I'll, I can't wait for my income tax, so I just don't think it's appropriate or, or fair in any, any stretch of the means, right? Yeah, I don't know what the normal anticipated time to get your tax return would be so you filed yours on paper or online yeah well i'm, I'm old school so i did some i did it on, with paper yes but uh, 
And that's no, the problem. Usually, usually five or six weeks is normal, I would assume. That I've always encountered that over the years. You know, it's five to six weeks if, if you're income tax in on time, which is, which it was, right? So... Yeah, I you know I think and CRA kind of says this out loud about how quickly you'll get your return uh, online filing versus paper filing. They probably just put a distinct. Well, I mean, when you do it online, it gets it's it's automated, so nobody yeah. really has to do anything. So does that mean that CRA kind of trimmed the staffing level somewhat because so many more people are moving to the online versus paper filing, and consequently, what might have been five or six weeks some years back before this became as popular as it is. Maybe, just maybe, there's not as many assessors looking at paper, period. Yeah, maybe so. But <laughs> It's not good enough, though. I, I get it. No, I, like I say, it's easy. Yeah, anyway, that's, that's just my rant for today. But it just seems a little, uh, little unfair, but that's it. That's, like you say, that's, anybody that deals with government, I guess that's what they run into. So. Yeah, now there's... There's some distinct problems that we've heard about at CRA over the recent past, whether it be about time to get through to speak to somebody, especially when there was the working from home issue that's sort of been settled at this moment in time. Then there's the issues about whether or not staff were actually trained properly to the point where they were giving accurate information versus so many examples of inaccurate information, which jeopardizes people. I mean, nobody wants to be in some sort of spat with CRA. That's the last no. thing people want. No. So when you get bum information, that's le- that's less than helpful. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely is. Are you expecting yep. a significant amount of money? Uh, I'm not sure what it was, like seven hundred bucks, I guess. With back to what the, but I think the Big actual enough. medical the actual medical expense that was involved, I think ended up getting me a credit of like a hundred and eighty bucks or something. Okay. So, I mean, we're not we're not talking, uh, you know, breaking the government budget or anything. But anyway. Just my rant for this morning. <laughs> well, th- you know, and I don't even know why I asked about the money because principle is a- is as important as the sum. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like I say, I mean, it's not going to make or break, but I mean, like I say, it's the principle thing, right? It shouldn't take uh, twenty five or twenty weeks or something to get a income tax process, but no, sir, it should not. <laughs> no. Anyway, thanks for your time this morning. Appreciate yours. Thanks for the call, Owen. All right. Stay thanks. in touch. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye. Okay, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number three. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. Morning to you. Yeah, I had to be watching the news yesterday. Even, uh, I suppose you've seen it, too. Uh, their intentions are doing with, away with that uh, locomotive 803 in Carbon Air. Now, I didn't see the most recent news, but what I remember about this is back late last year, the council, I think, voted to remove it, send it to the scrapyard, whether it be about safety or how much it would cost to renovate it. So where are we now? That's the intentions the same way. That's their intentions on the news yesterday. yesterday. Planned them removing it, cutting it up, and throwing it in the garbage. And the time counts is one even, one even except, like, uh, money donated, right? You know, it's unreal. That's a part of our heritage, not only in Carbonair, but that's from... Uh, that was part of our transportation in the, in the days, right? You know, and it's fairly unique. There's only one such locomotive in this province, and I think there's only like two in the country, if I remember that story properly. Like you say, is uh, do the uh, do you know the meaning of a restorations and uh, you know keep it for our heritage? And I don't know what their intent is. Probably if a lot of people call in and speak up their voice, and probably they change their minds and uh, government give them a bit of money. And like you say. There's no costly expense there to restore that. 
I don't know. I've seen it recently enough to know that it is pretty dilapidated, but I, it, it's cool looking. It's a very unique looking locomotive. Does anybody know what it would cost to restore? No, it's not. It's not mentioned. But like I say, well, then uh, not only that. Uh, what about the old Carl there? She's been rusting away for years. She's still a. She's still considered as a as a heritage of our problems, the old call that ran ashore there in, in, in Bay Roberts. Yeah, I, I, I look, I admit, I don't know why that's still there. <laughs> <laughs> that thing's gone. So, only, okay, well, that's the topic for the day, but I, I'm going to ask you one more, and have you got time? Sure. sure. When the rebates came in the mail today, you know, it's it's federal yep. and provincial and territorial. I guess that's the HST and GST. Is it, did, did the incentive one come in on that one today, or or, or the incentive program, the sixty-four dollar one? Though today's uh, bump on GST would be double what you would have got in January. So that's the so-called grocery rebate. So the problem there is that some people might think they're getting it, but the grocery rebate's actually based on your 2021 taxes, and your regular GST is based on your 2022 taxes. Why that is, I have no earthly idea. But that's what's coming today. Yeah, that so-called doubling of the GST payment. So really, 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 the the, the carbon incentive one is not out yet. Nope. Okay, Mr. Dale, you go and have a nice day, and uh, I just hope he comes uh, to a good decision about that locomotive uh, 803. Yeah, interesting. We'll follow through with council, but one point you made that is a little bit odd is that let's just say the town council say there's a, a concern with the safety, and I understand why that would be, but the cost of renovations, if there's there's been... Uh, maybe over a thousand people I think in the area signed a petition saying that they want to keep it and yeah. if everyone was willing to chip in but the town won't even accept a donation towards renovation or the restoration that's a strange one because any bit any bit of money that doesn't come out of the town budget you think would be something very attractive to the town council so maybe we'll see if we can get the mayor on okay thank you have a nice day you too sir all the best mm-hmm. alright bye bye yeah so the monies people are seeing today if you're eligible for and there's somewhere around 11 million Canadians will get this grocery rebate so to speak today it is kind of strange that it's not based on 2022 taxes because the price in the grocery store doesn't care about your 2021 earnings versus your 2022 earnings. I don't know how many people that's going to leave out of this eligibility, but strange enough. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty of time for you. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go line number one. Tom, you're on the air. Hi, how are you doing today, Patty? Excellent, thank you, sir. How about you? Yeah, and I, I'm not doing too bad. I just listen to your show every morning it comes on, and over the July, your last caller was talking about that railway car, 803. Yep. In Carbonair. Mm-hmm. My, gra- my granddad worked with the railway for 49 years. And I hate to see that car go. A lot of people will hate to see it go. Well, I mean, the public reaction has been pretty strong about the council making a a mistake here by scrapping it. Yes, that's what I was figuring on the same thing. But why don't they ship it up here to Briggs, where right where the old railway station was too. And we'll get a, a fundraiser on the go and restore it. I hate to see that go. My granddad drove that 
uh, mock-up lover, that's what I called it, back years ago when, uh-huh. it was Newf- when it was a Newfoundland railway. Right. Right? Anyway, my dad worked with the railway. I had aunts and uncles who worked with the railway. And I hate to see that going, I tell you what. My heart goes out to that collar. People are pretty passionate about stuff like this, right? You know, because whether yeah. it be an emotional attachment that you would have based on your dad working almost five decades with the rail. Yeah, what I, great. What I'd like to know from the town of Carbonier is, okay, I understand safety concerns, totally get it. But has yeah, anyone ever brought someone in to say, well, here's what it'll cost to restore yeah. to its past glory? And, you know, take it from there, because if we don't have a number, then people are just making arbitrary decisions, I would imagine. Something like that's that. True. That's true. Enough. Well, like you say now, down here now, I live in Brigus, and down there on the end of our road used to be a railway station. And that the local love, and that's all I'll ever call her, uh, used to drop off goods down here for grocery stores around the bay. No, you're gone back years now, aren't you? Yeah, I'm old enough to have been on the bullet, uh, but of you course. Were on the bullet? Yeah, I was. Yeah. Yeah. How how did you enjoy the bullet, Rough? Uh, yeah, well, I don't remember very clearly. We were really small children. I think it was a class outing, if I'm not mistaken, okay, out to Holyrood yeah, or something okay. for a bit of lunch yeah, and back. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand, yeah, yeah. Well, like you say, my dad, well, he worked on the railway for, I think it was 41 years, and my granddad was 49 years. Very so cool. Long while, long while, isn't it? It, it? Absolutely, it's a long while. Dave, let's see if we can get someone from the town on to talk about this particular locomotive because sometimes we think of subjects and topics that are, you know, right on the front burner, but things like this really get people's attention and, you know, that's brings true. some emotion. I'm happy to talk about it. Absolutely. Why yes, not? that's right. But anyway, Patty, I listen to you every morning. And uh, the first thing I got to do in the morning is put on VOCM uh, um, at 530, and I got to watch, uh, listen to the morning show and then when you comes on at nine o'clock the radio don't be turned off i appreciate the support thanks for tuning in and thanks for the oh. time on the phone okay you take care and have a good day same to you tom all the best okay okay right, bye-bye yeah i now i'm curious i mean how much would it cost i've seen it it absolutely needs some significant work but what that means regarding dollars and cents i would have no way of knowing but i'd like to know i wonder has the town even done that bit of work to help them with their decision-making about whether or not that has a place in the community any further. Anyway, and I'm pretty sure there's only a couple of those in the entire country, those 803s. Anyway, let's keep rolling there. Let's go to line number two, Rosemary, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. It's Rosemary hi. Flynn from Shoe Cove regarding the grocery rebate. Yes, ma'am. I'm glad to hear you bring up the point that it was based on the 2021 uh, tax return. Mm-hmm. And so, basically, I guess uh, they're basing our grocery rebate on two years ago when some of us didn't qualify so but we're living in today so yeah i think the whole thing is actually very unequal and i think it's a waste of that billion or billions of money um it could have been lump sum directed to maybe our medical care in the province or something like that you know you know i get the pinch that people feel at the grocery store and i know the government hears that almost every day you know for obvious reasons the intention is reasonable. The execution is questionable. Like, why? I mean, they had the 2022 tax returns on hand. Why would there even be any thought to not base it on last year's earnings and last year's eligibility for the GST? Like, I don't even understand why anyone would have thought, well, let's do this. Because for folks who are struggling today, they are still struggling after this 
grocery rebate. I mean, it's nice short-term relief to be able to bring in some new money, we'll call it, but we go right back to where we began. Next month, that money is easily spent, and consequently, the long-term relief is just not part of this package. No, and, and, and lump sum-wise, is what, what, one point something billion or something to uh, distribute this money? Like, it filters down to about 60 cents a day if you get the maximum amount as a senior. Like, 60 cents a day is someone that doesn't even buy a packet of noodles. So, and it's one, you know, it's a one-time-off thing. So it is kind of badly directed, um, and as I said, a lot of people are falling through the cracks because of their tax returns in 2021, when I was very rich, I guess, back then, according to the government, earned too much, but now I'm retired, so things have changed totally over the two years. So thank you for bringing up that point anyway. Uh, happy to do it. And that you, you're probably going to be one of thousands or hundreds of thousands that have the exact same life circumstance. I was working, now I'm retired. Or it's just something happened in my life, whether it be a medical issue, a family issue, a change of jobs, whatever it is. If the GST eligibility, it, it, it's infuriating. <laughs> not that I think about it any further. It's a bit of a political ploy, quite honestly, like a lot of these things. When it actually filters right down, it's really uh, costing a lot to execute and it's not really giving an awful lot to the Yeah, people. I try to calculate the political uh, motivation on a lot of these types of decisions. It's like the 500 bucks that went out the door from the province. That was all political. You know, they're trying to make sure the middle class didn't feel left out. People earning up to $125,000 got a couple of hundred bucks in the mail. I'm like, what was that for? And same thing with this. But I, for the life of me, I can't understand the political upside here. Like, where is it? Temporarily, maybe keep everybody happy, stop a, a revolt over a lot of other things, you know, the money that's being spent in lots of other places, millions and billions spent everywhere. Yeah. People going to the food banks, you know. So anyway, thank you very much, and I'm sure you'll get a lot of calls on, on this point. I appreciate your time, uh, Rosemary. Thank Daddy. you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, and I guess what I mean, uh, probably a little bit clumsily put, is where's the political upside for the federal government to have this difference between eligibility based on 2021 earnings or 2022 earnings. Like, it's just sort of bizarre. If someone, whether it be one of our own members of parliament or anybody else, can help us understand exactly why that's the decision that was made here about who's eligible for this. And we're talking about a small amount of money, right? So if you have, if you're married and family of four, it's $628. We all know how far that will stretch for a family of four in the grocery store. I mean, it's not an insignificant amount of money, but it's certainly not going to deal with any long-term pain that us grocery shoppers are feeling. And I don't even know where that answer is or what government should do. But if you listen to the Competition Bureau and their comments about uh, competition, and not only competition for how many uh, major retailers that eat up about three-quarters of food sales, but it's even small things like distribution. And how the big shots, they control a lot of that too. And the ability for a big grocery store to get payment from a supplier for shelf space versus what it means in reality for the smaller shop or the medium-sized grocery store. When the Competition Bureau was started, there was eight what they considered large food retailers. Now they're down to five. So even that reduction of competition does make a difference. Now, in fairness, the Competition Bureau also said that in reviewing grocery store margins, they voting increased... Uh, modestly throughout the pandemic, but they also add the word meaningfully. We heard from the testimony offered by executives at the big three in particular in front of the uh, House of Commons Committee, and they talked about revenue, they talked about margin, they talked about profit, trying to make us believe that there's no such thing as any additional profits or any additional level of corporate greed, as people refer to it. But the profits have increased. 
margins, not huge, but meaningful. What does that, what does that mean for me and you as grocery shoppers? A fair bit, I would suggest. Anyway, let's go to another one before we go to the break and go to line three. Rod, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, how are you doing? Best kind. You? No, not too bad. Uh, nothing really on my mind to talk about today, Patty, but okay. uh, enjoy your show anyways. What I am phoning uh, for, I lost my key fob yesterday in Grand Falls. Uh, either around the Walmart store or in the Walmart or Dominion, Sobeys, or Central Meat. Those are the four places that I went to. One thing that uh, I kind of took from losing my key, if the wife's in the vehicle with you and she's got her key fob, the vehicle is still going to start. <laughs> so we didn't realize we lost uh, my keys until we got home when uh, no keys, eh? So if you don't mind, I'd like your listeners and that uh, to keep an eye out in Grand Falls for my keys. Absolutely. You want to describe it a little further than a key fob? Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's got other keys on there, so it's uh, it's for a uh, 2018 Chevy Equinox, and it's got a little Chev uh, logo on it, and it's got uh, silver all the way around it. It's got the can start and all that stuff. Uh, you push a little silver button, and actually, the key will pop out if you ever need the key yep. uh, itself. Hey, that's basically uh, what it is. So. So I'm trying to save some dollars here because to get one made up is over 300 bucks. So, oh man, I unfortunately, you know, I have one of those types of keys as well, and a replacement key is extremely expensive. Yes, they are. Uh, so a lesson learned in that uh, uh, for myself and that I usually keep my keys in my front pockets all the time, but for some reason. I had it in my back pocket, and it might have pulled out when I had my phone back there, and when I lifted my phone out, I think they might have fallen on the ground at that time and not realizing it. No problem. So one more time, give the folks the shops that you went to where your key might be found. At Walmart or in the Walmart parking lot, uh, Sobeys, Dominion, or Central Meats. Those are the four locations I went to. Those are the only spots that I got out of my vehicle at. And so if someone picked it up, you want them to bring it into one of the businesses uh, that you yes. mentioned? Yes, if they don't mind. If someone sees it laying outside, uh, I park in the handicap zone. Uh, if someone does see a key, uh, just please take it into uh, the, the store that's where if, if they found it, like if they found the Sobeys, just take it into Sobeys. And uh, I'm staying in touch with these four locations to see if anyone has returned the key in there. So. Fingers crossed, because for the most part, that key is of no use to them. So if you picked it up, bring it into one of those shops, lay it on the yeah. counter, you'll get in touch with them, Rod, and hopefully you can get it. Yes. Uh, I can leave my number, too, if anyone wants sure. to call me directly. So Go ahead. Uh, yep, uh, 709-672-7130. 709-672-7130. Great. Thanks, Rod. Good luck. Yep, thanks, Dave, or uh, Patty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, there we go. Uh, da -da 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 -da. Let's go ahead and take a break. Not sure what that subject line means, but we're going to talk about something College of the North Atlantic right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Kristen, you're on the air. 
Hi, Patty. How are you? Excellent. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. Patty, I called in because you asked a question about uh, wanting to know if anybody had done up a quote on the train in Carbonair. Yeah. About six years ago, um, my family used to own a, a steel fabrication company. We were approached by the town of Carbonair to do up an estimate on, on redoing the train. Six years ago, the estimate on that train was a little over $100,000. Really? Wow. Because of, what, because of what you need. Like, you have to make that train not just aesthetically pleasing. You have people climbing on it. It needs to be safe. Mm-hmm. But they also want it to look the way it's supposed to look. So the time, the labor, and the seal costs was over $100,000. And that's six years ago, so you can add thirty percent to that. Absolutely, steel prices over the last few years have more than doubled. Holy smokes! Over a hundred thousand dollars. I'm a little bit surprised, although I suppose there's an awful lot of fabrication work that would have to be done to match up with that uh, an old eight hundred three locomotive like that one. So, wow. Yes, because those parts are not readily available. No. Everything has to be fabricated. Yeah, no doubt. So, but it it is a costly venture with if you know you know more power to the town and the people. But if you're going to fundraise, you have a lot of fundraising to do. Do you ever? I suppose. Well, I didn't really give it much thought as to how much it would cost because I was just curious what the town may have done on that front. Be, you know, because when you're going to make a decision, it's probably nice to have all of the pertinent facts in front of you, including how much it would cost. Safety concerns don't go away when this is completely refurbished, so that's a constant. But what it would look like for fabricating steel, painting it, cleaning up around it so that it's, you know, you know, you add value to whatever the preservation would look like. So a hundred grand, make that 130 at the very least six years later. Really appreciate the information, Kristen. No problem, Patty. Thank you. Thanks. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Now, I wonder if it's just devil's advocate. <laughs> so I'm the town of Carbonair, and I say to those who are wishing and hoping that uh, they don't scrap that particular locomotive. And you say, okay, so what we need is we have 25 grand or we have $30,000. If in the course of the next year, the supporters of the preserving and restoring that particular train are able to come up with the rest, then we'll keep it. And, you know, I don't know if that's fair or if that's even something that municipalities can actually do. But I think some people who are wanting for that locomotive to stay might be a little bit surprised that a six-year-old quote on steelwork alone was over $100,000. Whoa, that's a big price tag. Uh, let's go to line number one. Sean, you're on the air. Hi, how you doing? Great, you. I tell you, uh, I'm calling about my son. He's in a program in the CNA out in Port of Bass. Yep. And it's a two-year program, so he's on his second year now, uh, starting in September. But they've added a lot more courses out in uh, that uh, school. Mm -hmm. And so now it's almost impossible to find any lodging. Uh, That's anything less than a 30-minute drive away from the school. He doesn't have a vehicle, can't find lodging, and is halfway through his course and they've added more students into that school, which is reduced amount of lodging. And there's no real places to stay. There's no residence. There's, it's not set up very well. And they're forcing students to go out uh, with no accommodations. So I think CNA only has student residence at 
maybe three campuses, including up in Happy Valley Goose Bay, I know for sure they do, maybe in Bjorn, and maybe one other spot, I can't remember where that might be, but there's got to be a housing coordinator, doesn't there, for off-campus housing, and to try to match people up with someone who might even just want to rent a room, do they have any supports for off-campus housing? Not that we've uh, discovered, we've been in touch with the school, um, it's not very well ran, for lack of a better term, and trying to be polite, um, but like they didn't even know when the course was going to end in uh, the end of last season. When he got out of school, he he ended up running into a situation where he couldn't tell the place where he was renting when he was going to leave because they didn't know the end date for the school. It could be two weeks' time or three weeks. He ended up ending on the end of the month and leaving. And, you know, they were a little bit frustrated where he didn't give much notice. So they don't want him to come back there because of uh, the way he left and didn't want to pay for an extra month of uh, lodging when he didn't need to. It just seems like it's not very well ran, and it's not much foresight put into accommodations for these uh, students that are going to that school out there. Look, uh, across the board here, when we talk about housing, whether it be you live in the area and you're lucky enough to be able to stay at home and go to CNA and Memorial University or what have you, but an awful lot of folks for the course of their choosing or to go to Mon have to travel and that requires housing so there's one program we've been talking about that Mun needs to restore is a home share so if i'm a senior in the area i'm willing to rent a room at a reasonable cost to a student uh, in exchange for them helping me out around the house shoveling the driveway or salting the steps or that kind of stuff that can work i just found a name if you'd like to take it here for what they call a student development officer who is what they're asking me if i when i clicked on their website very quickly it said if you need off-campus housing support or to be pointed in the right direction, please contact a student development officer. And I have the name of the lady at the Port of Bass campus. Okay, just grabbing a pen frantically. <laughs> uh, go ahead. Now, there's only an email address here. For the other campuses, they oh. do indeed have phone numbers. I don't know why that's the case here, but I will give you the email address. Go ahead. It's uh, Samantha. Yep. Dot Allen, A L L E N. E N. Yep. At CNA. Okay. Dot NL dot CA. Well, I'll definitely follow up with that. I appreciate uh, the insight, and hopefully it uh, brings some levity to my son's dilemma because he's pretty stressed out about it. Yeah, let me know, Sean. I certainly will. I'll be curious how to see how that works out. Okay, thank you for your time. Pleasure. Anytime. All right, bye-bye. You know, some of those things, it really does need the initiative to be grappled by leadership at CNA or Academy Canada or Memorial University, Marine Institute, whatever the case may be. We know that the cost of living issues, rent and others, is really pressurizing people who have to travel, whether it be from other parts of the province, other parts of the country, or internationally. So it seemed to work. And there's some uh, universities, specifically on the west coast of the country, that have formalized this home share arrangement. I think that's what they're calling it. So just think about it out loud. How many people, there's criminal background checks and there's some oversight and monitoring of these programs. So we have a student who needs a room. And I'm a retiree, a senior maybe, and I'm living in my own home. I've got 
the room that I could absolutely uh, rent out to a student. And so I get a few bucks coming in the door and some of the household chores that I'm maybe not up to or not interested in any further, mowing the lawn or raking the leaves or painting the fence or shoveling the sidewalk or shoveling the driveway and salting the stuff, those things that could be really beneficial to a senior citizen in their own home. And we take a student out of the equation who now has a place to live. Because you've seen some of the stories, right, where you have a big number of people living in very cramped conditions when I would imagine, given the pressures that seniors and others feel, is it would be pretty nice matchup for a student that's been vetted by the university and has produced a criminal background check, uh, and there's some oversight and monitoring and some matching services available at the university or CNA or Academy Canada or the Marine Institute, you could probably settle and solve a lot of these housing concerns. Because if you're new to the area and you're trying to focus in on your studies and at the exact same time really trying to figure out where you're going to lay your head at night, it's a problem that you think should be... It's not, nothing's easy in this world, but certainly that home share makes a lot of sense. Let's take a break for the 11 o'clock news. When we come back, tons of time for you. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration, shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, one of the issues during the strike at Memorial University, there was various issues, but one of them was absolutely about collegial governance. And there was a commitment made by the provincial government to appoint academic staff to the Board of Regents at Memorial University. Apparently, and I believe it actually was part of amendments to the Memorial University Act that happened in late May, received royal assent. Now, here we are at the 11th hour, and apparently no academic staff members have yet to be appointed to the Board of Regents. Join us on line number one is the president of Monfa, that's Ash Hussein. Good morning, Ash. You're on the air. Good morning. So I think that captures the issue surrounding collegial governance. So exactly what's happening here at this moment of time regarding staff members being appointed to the board? So like, uh, just to give you a timeline, during our strike and during and immediately after the government promised and agreed that it's, it's, uh, it's important that there should be like uh, academic staff members on the Board of Regents, because ours is the only university in Canada, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, lacks a representation from uh, faculty members on the Board of Regents. So uh, then they uh, amended the MAN Act, and I believe it received the royal assent in uh, May. So after it was amended, then uh, Minister Hagi at that time, the Education Minister, asked me for some names. Uh, so we had an emergency meeting, and then we uh, gave them some names uh, for to be Put in the Board of Regents. Uh, then everything went silent. Uh, everything went silent, and then uh, then we have a new minister now. We sent her a welcome letter with uh, what we were having with uh, Haggy and all that, and but no replies. And now there is a Board of Regents meeting tomorrow, and there is still no news. A complete pin drop silence. Uh, no news about uh, appointing any faculty members on the Board of Regents. And bear in mind that the July meeting or the spring meeting, they call it, it's very important because that kind of sets the agenda and the strategy for the upcoming academic year. The next meeting is not until October. So and uh, this is like less than 24 hours left for the meeting and there is no news and they did not reply to our letter and nothing. 
So this is very frustrating for us uh, because this is, uh, it seems like to us, the government is more synced with the university administration than with the faculty, students and staffs. If I remember correctly, the minister of the day, John Hagee, said this this would happen right away or without delay. I can't remember the words he chose, but something along those lines. Uh, how many seats were you anticipating or hoping for on the board? Uh, we definitely were hoping for like multiple seats because uh, you have to uh, remember there are multiple uh, units uh, with faculty. We have the full-time faculty members are our members, and we have the part-time faculty members, uh, which is like the uh, uh, Luman. Then we have Marine Institute, which is covered by NAPE, and then we have Lab Instructor, which is covered by QP, right? Like, so we have different pockets of, uh, like, uh, staff members which are related to teaching uh, our students, uh, right? So we were hoping that uh, all the all those uh, pockets will be covered. Uh, if not, at least a couple of seats, uh, more than one for sure. Yeah. Collegial governance is more than the Board of Regents seat, so what sort of significance would academic representation on the board really mean? And then we'll talk about what other steps inside collegial governance to make it better or more acceptable for your association. So we'll start with that. What does it really even mean in real terms to have seats on the board? So basically, the university's responsibilities are one is the academic side, one is the fiscal side. Right? So academic side is overseen by the Senate. And the fiscal side is overseen by the Board of Regents. So it's, uh, faculty, faculty members have representation in the Senate, but no representation in the Board of Regents. And it is important. It is important. The reason it's important is because, like, you know about all the shenanigans of, like, the Fogo Island scandal and uh, many other things that happened in a month. Uh, so, and if we had representation in the Board of Regents, we, uh, the, we, we think we could have done a better job, at least if we don't have the votes. Obviously, we won't have the majority votes, but we could have, like, at least get our voices known and, like, maybe stop some of these things. And I mentioned that in the strike also. And I, I, I'm not going to name names, but I have heard from people who served in the Board of Regents before uh, that this, this is... We're pretty much a rubber stamp board, basically. They just uh, they just don't pay attention to the details of the financial statements, don't read them that clearly, and then most of them just uh, rubber stamps. But but that's why it's important to have proper faculty representations because we would be more meticulous, uh, more, provide more due diligence to the processes. Interesting to see what the Auditor General has to say about Memorial University uh, soon. So in addition to seats on the board, what does collegial governance even mean? Because it seems to be a real catch-all phrase with no real details or definitions beyond these seats on the board. So, no, it's actually, uh, there is more. Uh, during the collective agreement, uh, the strike and, and after the strike, uh, what we have uh, struck is a committee. The, the committee is already formed. It will have representation from both the faculty and the administration. Uh, and this this committee in the next uh, next year or year and a half will look into like what are the issues uh, with uh, uh, with the memorial and how we can improve that. One of the uh, concrete example, for example, they used to have secretive uh, searches for the top administration, like Vyantim was the way she was hired. It was done it quite quite secretively, right? Like the Senate probably didn't uh, most likely didn't have any say, like. She was already in town while they, they were given her uh, folio, right? So, so uh, these things can improve. 
So this is just a, just a concrete example that uh, layman terms that everybody will understand. The senior administration, like the vice chancellor uh, slash the president, the provost hired, the VP hires, they, they should be open to all. So think about it. If it was an open process, like uh, when Vian Timmons was hired, like a lot of eyes would have been on her resume and a lot of thing, embarrassment we could have uh, saved ourselves from. Yeah, there seems to be some gaps in vetting, so to speak, and $150,000 to hire a, a headhunting firm, as people refer to them. Hopefully the process is a bit more streamlined and comprehensive this go-around. So we know what this means to the Faculty Association. We know what it means to the, well, I guess we know what it means to the province, given the silence coming from the department. What does it mean for the students? Because collegial governance might work for the minister responsible, the administrators at MON, MONFA, and other collective bargaining groups. But what does it really mean for the student? Uh, for the student, like few few things. First thing is like the teacher's working environment is the student's learning environment, right? Like and 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 for the students, for example, like uh, in in the in the disguise of uh, uh, COVID, they have increased like class size significantly. Like the my the class that I used to teach had fifty five students. Now they have eighty five plus students. So that is the learning environment for the students. Like this happens because there's a lot of uh, like the, this collegiality is lacking and the administration single-handedly like or it's a top-down approach. So if there is a, like a, a core sharing and like if we had more say, we could have objected to this thing. This is directly impacting the students. So that's just one example. The other things that can happen is uh, like uh, like for example, in our our faculty. The graduate uh, uh, program was almost nuked uh, by the previous thing. So, and better collegial governments could have improved this kind of situation. So, yes, like so some of the things are directly impacting uh, the students. And again, uh, the whole thing about the financial shenanigans, like any money saved will help the students, right? Like any misuse of money saved will help the students because they increased double the tuition last year, which I still disagree. Uh, so, yeah, like, so one way or the other, like anything that happens within the university, it, it, it directly or indirectly impacts the students. The students are the heart and soul of the university, right? Yeah, I was looking for examples, and I'm glad you provided some. So whether it be savings afforded to the maintenance deficit at the school or fees or tuition, whatever the case may be, the Premier has said he's willing to have another look at these issues, which absolutely has to happen. Uh, Ash... So let's just walk down the road a little bit. And so no news yet about this upcoming meeting or the meeting that's pending. What happens if there is no academic representation on the board and if it drags on any further? Because this was one of the key issues inside the strike that happened uh, uh, last year. What happens if they don't oblige with their commitments? Well, just to clarify, this was not one of our strike demands because we understood that the Memorial University Administration cannot give us Board of Regency. It has to go through the government and the Mon Act Amendment. So we understood that. But this was um, this was like kind of like a behind the scene understood by the government that, yeah, this is part of collegial governments and we should do it. So that's how they promised it. So just just to clarify, clarify on that point. Okay, fair enough. Uh, and 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 now get back to what you were asking. Like, what if nothing happens for tomorrow? That will be frustrating, and uh, then uh, then it will only prove that the government uh, is uh, well. They are politicians. They just 
played us basically. And uh, what happened is they are more aligned with the, my memorial administration than uh, with the faculty, staff, and students. <clears throat> That's what it will prove. And uh, yeah, we we try to have faith on our politicians, but we will be proved wrong. I guess we'll all find out at the same time and when there's a development or no development, I guess, importantly. Ash, you're welcome to come back on the program, talk about next steps. Sure, I'll be always available. Appreciate the time. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Sash Hussain, the president of Mons Faculty Association. Okay, break time. When we come back, crab. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Conway, you're on the air. Yes, good morning. Good morning. Um, phone in day by... Uh Apparently, we never got no extension on our crab over here in the Gulf, or are, and uh, I don't understand why. I've been trying to get over to uh, DFO and the union, and well, I have no, uh, haven't got uh, anybody come back to me. But and I was talking to a few of the fishermen, and they they can't understand neither. He said, no, it's all closed down for us on the 30th. Now, most of us have been lobster fishing since, I guess, the, the crab protest started. When lobsters opened, we all went at lobsters. And, uh, well, we couldn't go crab fishing, apparently. And now that they opened that, they give everybody else an extension except for us. And... I was going to go out uh, and go turbot fishing and run out my crab gear to help subsidize on my fuel and that. But <laughs> we can't even do that. So, well, it's con- just to be clear, Conway, so extensions have been given in other zones, but not in 4R alone? Apparently, that's what I've been told. But I can't get hold of anybody in, in I guess, in the, the government or the, well, the union, just we'll call them the government too, so... Can't get hold nobody to let us know what's what happened and what went on. So I mean, DFO. I used to have their number. I don't. I can't even get get hold anybody in there now. I got two or three different numbers, and it always goes to voicemail. So. And so it's looking for an extension beyond the thirtieth of July. Yeah, well, I mean, they closed it all down. The union was going around, going and saying that he was going to get an extension put on it. I mean, it wasn't our choice. I mean, you got to go with the flow if you don't. Gee, look what was going to happen to everybody else. I mean, I know there's no big money, but I mean, a little bit is better than none. Mm-hmm. Sure. And like I said, I get the turbot here in the, in the golf here in 4R, I mean, I could have went out and run out my nets and uh, had my crab pots out and kind of subsidized my crab fishery with my turbot because it's not a... I mean, we're not up in the Atlantic Ocean. We're only here in a brook. And uh, no, it just seems like every time we turn around, we're getting we're getting short into the straw. I mean, it's ridiculous. And there's nobody and nobody speaking up about nothing. I mean, we uh, uh, just uh, just just for another example. Here's the second year on our codfish closed down. That's what I was going to ask oh, you. Yeah. So you're fishing northern cod in the Gulf, so the the moratorium continues this year, does it? Apparently, but science said last year if we had a fishery, it wouldn't make a difference to the quota. 
the overall biomass, it wouldn't make a difference. To get food fishery going here, I guarantee is more took in the run of a day and the food fishery what the commercial fishery takes. I mean, I just bought an enterprise. To, this is my third year, and they've closed down the mackerel on me. They've closed down the codfish on me. They've uh, basically took my crab away from me, so I'm left with a, a handful of lobsters. And, and you can't get a crew to go north anymore. I mean, anybody that was one time was was fishing, ready to go around to go north, they're basically too old to go or they're, they're all gone up across Canada looking for a job because one or two trips up north on a boat is is no good. I mean, they closed down, like I said, they had the crab all closed down all spring. Anybody that had money, that needed to go and never had a, a bank account full of money had to leave and go away. So what have they got us left with? Is they really, really that determined to close down all the small businesses? That are going to take every last little cent that they can manage to scrape up. They're, they're going to close it down and take it from them. So, can we? Were you suggesting that there's more fish taken in the recreational food fishery than the commercial cod fishery? <laughs> yes, I'd say. Really? Boy, look at it. Boy, you get uh, we get three thousand pound a week, uh, and then you'll get two weeks here, and then you'll get another month or so go by, and you'll get another two weeks. I mean, we haven't got a, a, a big fish, and we're not allowed like like the, the East Coast over there, where you can go buy three ground fish licenses and fish them on one boat. No, I, we're allowed one ground fish license on one boat, and if your buddy's up with somebody now, well, I didn't have you half it's gone with the other fellow. We're only allowed one ground fish license. Okay. We're not to buddy, uh, we're not allowed to combine over here because. I don't know why. I don't know where our license is going to go. I mean, everybody around here is in their 60s and crawling for their 70s, and, and you got a handful of young people. <laughs> but, like I said, I don't know what their master plan is, but I know they're definitely trying to get rid of all of us over here. I mean, there's no other, there's no way to, to look at it. How can you close everything down on one group and leave the other group going? I, I don't know. But, you know, like everything else here, if there is, whether it be the union or the government, what, whichever, if there's a question being asked, when you don't have the ability to get an answer, it just makes everything worse. Even if it's not what you want to hear, an answer is better than silence. Yes, exactly. And when you're left, like you said, when there's silence, then you're wondering what's going on in the back. Eh? What, what back door was opened up now for some kind of deal? Because you don't need to tell me that it don't happen because I already know it do. I've been in the situations to know that about all these backdoor deals is done. I mean, I can look up and tell you right now about uh, the Livy that's took off on our lobsters when nobody signed the paper for. Two cent Livy. I got a contract with the union says negotiate fish prices and help negotiate quota. Nothing wrote down in my contract saying that I'm going to give two cents on the pound of my lobsters to the union. But yet, there's not one politician wants to step up. So, I mean, like I said, there's a lot going on. And when this is quiet and silence and stuff is closed down and nobody's giving you any answers, and you got a business to run and families to feed, Somebody's, there's election coming up. I guess somebody's going to start running around screeching and bawling now like they're going to do something again. So, 
But anyway, it's just I'm just putting it out there publicly that it's time for someone to open their mouth and let the people know what's going on. Yeah, I haven't had anybody uh, confirm to me that the moratorium on Northern Cod and the Gulf continues this year. I've been trying to figure it out, but I haven't got any firm confirmation from, you know, an entity that would have the uh, absolutely no, whether it be DFO or hopefully the union. But I just can't get anyone to tell me. It's a pretty fundamental question. Is it going or not? Well, if it ain't, by, uh, do, 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 I think it's time to come out with a package like they've done before. If, if they're going to let them fish down in tree PS all winter long, when he knows that the mixing of fish from 4RST goes down there, I mean, I knows it. I've been been followed it ever since I was got into chasing the government and the union around in the meetings all around Newfoundland. And I'm up across Canada with the union one time. We, I mean, they knows it. But yet, they'll close down this fishery here in 4RST and they'll allow tree PS winter fishery keep on going. And then look up and say, well, we don't know if the fish goes down there. But it's pretty good mismanagement. Yeah, the fish swim. Conway, uh, I've, I'll see if I can get some follow-up questions put to either the, the union or the department because there's some pretty serious questions here. And they're fundamental answers. They're either yes or no's. Northern Cod in the Gulf, yes or no. Right? Extension come for crab, yes or no. And if it's no in 4R but yes elsewhere, why? So these are not complicated questions. These are really fundamental ones that we should be able to get an answer to, and I'll try again today to see if we can get them for tomorrow. Thank you very much. Appreciate the call. And appreciate your time. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, at some point, especially government, just has to figure this very fundamental one out. People might not like the answer, but they prefer to get an answer versus the silence. It's just ridiculous. You know, yes or no, Northern Cod, Northern Cod in the Gulf, moratorium or not. Any extension coming for whatever zone, 4R or anything else, if, if the answer is we're considering it, when can we expect a decision? Or is it yes or is it no? And uh, for sure, some of the want for an extension to make sure that they land all of the 120 million pounds, some of that, of course, brought upon clearly by having the boats tied up and no, none of the fishery uh, happening for some six weeks. But anywho, break for the news. Wayne, you stay right there. He wants to talk about road signage and Dr. Clooney McPherson House. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back. And I know better, but I call the cod in the Gulf, Northern Cod, but it's, of course, Gulf Cod. Northern Cod is off of Labrador, Eastern Newfoundland. I know. Okay, you're right. Let's go. Line number three. Wayne, you're on the air. Good day, sir. How you doing? Great. How about you? Oh, you know, sitting here getting ready, trying to figure out what I'm going to have for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot to have on your mind. <laughs> I think I think I'm going to have a cigar before I have lunch. How's that? Lucky you. Or yeah, yeah, fair enough. So anyway, the reason why I called you was yeah, I when I got to Newfoundland on the 26th on this side, I live in Nova Scotia, but I'm from St. John's. Okay. I jo- I joined the Navy uh, 45 years ago and did 30 years of that. But anyway, every time I come home, I uh, drive around the rock and see what's on the go, and especially in the St. John's area. And I noticed this time when I went out as far as Gander and came back, there's a lot of signs in rough shape, quite a few. 
and the province needs to take them down and repair them and put them back up or something. Absolutely. The other thing I know, the other thing I noticed when I was visiting the last three times I was here, there's a when you drive the Guju Highway, there's airport signs up there, a little tiny plane in the box there. Mm-hmm. Some of them are there's one of those that is not pointing in the direction of the airport, and I ended up taking the wrong ramp. Oh man. <laughs> But, you know, I can still navigate old St. John's, but once when I get out into the the newer parts of Mount Pearl and the Gould, like I was in the Gould yesterday, I was 100% shocked out the changes out there over 45 years. Holy smokes. Yeah, it's really grown a lot. So when's the last time you were in the Goulds? 45 years ago? No, 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 no. I, uh, I come home every, uh, I try to get home every five years if I can do it. Okay. But, uh. I'm just amazed about it. Like, in my garage at home, I got a, a grid map of St. John's from 1978. And believe me, there's quite a bit of change. Yeah, no question. The other the other thing I wanted to mention to you was uh, the, Mac, the uh, McPherson home uh, out there by uh, Dr. McPherson home by uh, the Aqua Arena. I found it kind of sad that it was tore down for a man that served in the, sec- or the First World War and invented the gas mask. And save thousands of uh, troops' lives with that invention. I mean, all gas masks today are based on what his design was. And I just found it kind of sad that Memorial University tore down a bit of Newfoundland history. It was too bad they couldn't turn it into a museum or something or found some way to preserve it. Just so I'm clear, is that that old White House between Elizabeth Avenue and the Aquarina? Yes. Okay. That thing was falling apart. But that's a great example of how the heritage properties here have been, you know, dilapidated because people don't put the money into it or a private uh, person owns it. And some of the requirements to keep it up to snuff inside heritage zones or to meet uh, national historic designations is so expensive. Consequently, we've lost a lot of them. Oh, big time. Yeah, big time. I've noticed that, especially when you're driving around down around old St. John's. It's a beautiful province, beautiful city. Hopefully we can try to preserve more of them. Anyway, sir, I think I'm going to go have a cigar. You have a great day. You too, Wayne. All the best, buddy. Take care. Cheers. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Look, heritage is probably not important for some, right? You know, we call ourselves the oldest city in North America, which I think is more of a marketing campaign than actual accurate historical fact. But we've had a lot of really aesthetically pleasing and important heritage properties gone, lost. The rally cry only happens at the 11th hour before the wrecking ball flies. And as a result, you know, some communities, some parts of the province have done a bang-up job on that. Uh, Bonavista comes to mind, right? Really looks great inside the community. Now, and I, I know that this is probably not a real priority for some or most or many people listening to the show this morning. But we are only a stone's throw away from being a vinyl-siding jungle, right? With no defining or unique characteristics for a city that's as old as it is and as historically significant as it is, we just don't have the historically significant heritage properties being maintained, preserved, for a variety of obvious reasons. You know, compare that to some older cities in the country that have done a much better job than we've done, and even around different parts of the province. There has been some notable areas that really should be better protected and more done to do exactly that. Let's go to line number one. Jackie, you're on the air. Uh, Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Not too bad, thanks. How are you doing? 
Uh, pretty good, Patty. Uh, I'm calling this morning to talk about my daughter. Okay. My daughter was diagnosed, had very bad hearing loss, um, unknown reason. She's 30 years old. She has profound hearing loss, and it's usually a type of a hereditary hearing loss, but there is nobody on either side of the family with a loss. So her specialist, her ENT specialist, did up a requisition for her to have an MRI done urgently so that he could rule out other things and possibly be able to prescribe her hearing aids so that she can hear again. And um, it was two months, well, the appointment was the 16th of May, and the secretary sent off the requisition that very day because I talked to her. And um, urgent was Mark Dennis. So she said, you should have heard something by now because of that and the nature of what it is. So we weren't after hearing nothing, no letter, no anything. So I got a number to call uh, the department over at St. Clair's where they do the appointments for it. I talked to a secretary over there. She was very nice. She explained to me that uh, she had it on file. And I said, well, it is marked urgent. And I said, like, this is, it's affecting her every being. It's uh, It affects her job. She can't hear people that are talking to her. A uh, smoke alarm goes off in the house. She can't hear the, the high decibel of a smoke alarm. And uh, the secretary told me that she has no appointment for a yes. And I said, but urgent's marked on it. And she said, yes, but the radiologist didn't deem it urgent. So when it's just a requisition for an MRI versus an urgent MRI or an emergency MRI, do they come with defined times for waiting? Well, the doctor told me that within two months she should have it done and have the results of it. But they usually send you out an appointment date a month before you have one. And I found out this morning from the secretary that she's in the system, but she's not even been looked at for a date yet. And that was with the secretary of radiology department just said my own curiosity so if her hearing is as poor as it is is -hmm. there not an opportunity to outfit her with some hearing aids while you try to figure out exactly what's going on or what caused it well she don't want to be lost in the system like that and we did not get into that with it he said he wanted to make sure that there was nothing else going on okay right which is fair Oh, absolutely. Look, if it was my life, my health, my requisition for an MRI, I'd want one as soon as possible based on urgency, as the doctor indicated on the rec. Yeah. So have they given you any idea when an appointment will be forthcoming? Because, look, I had a uh, referral to a dermatologist, and I waited, 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 and when I eventually called their office, I was told that I was being offered an appointment in about a year from now. And for diagnostic imaging, which is different than my minor league concern there with a dermatologist, mm-hmm. th- have they told you that you can anticipate yeah. one in 30 days or 60 days no. or 90 days? 12, 12 to 18 months. 12 to 18 months when they wanted it done in two months. 12 to 18 months, months. Hmm. yes. And I said to the radio, the secretary at the radiology department, I said, so what happens? I said, how can this be sped up? This is affecting her every bit of her life. And she told me that um, she would have to go back to her, do- an option would be to go back to your specialist and ask them to rewrite the re- requisition with more urgency on it. The word urgent on it, the requisition states profound hearing loss for someone of her age. And the radiologist overruled what the specialist said and said he didn't consider it urgent. 
Now, I have a problem with that. Sure. But, I mean, urgent is a pretty well understood word. You know, it doesn't have to be very urgent or really urgent. Urgent is urgent. You know, it's as simple well, as that. urgent shouldn't need to be explained to the, rec- to the on a requisition to a, spe- to a radiologist if the specialist said it was urgent. Yeah. I would imagine for the radiologist, this is not in, in defense of that person, but when they look at the recs they have based on whatever uh-huh. the, the writing is coming from a GP or whatever type of doctor, yeah. I guess they make their own decisions because they've got a backlog. Obviously, as you just told us, 12 to 18 months. So I guess they've been forced into a, a place where they prioritize based on their own understanding and decide their own expertise and their discipline. But that doesn't make you or your daughter feel any better. So what are you going to do? Well, I am going to take it further. I'm going to talk to somebody that's going to help me out with this because this is this is not even comprehensible to think that somebody can wait that long as you deteriorate even more and you and you can't hear a smoke alarm go off. She was at a workplace one night and the smoke alarm went off, the fire alarm went off and somebody had said, aren't you leaving? Like, and she didn't hear it. I would imagine. Festival is gone. Yeah, given wait times for virtually everything, I'm going to guess that 90% of requisitions uh, have that word urgent on it. Something like that. You know that the doctors are trying to do that for their patients, trying to understand and empathize with your concern and attaching that label of urgent to it, whether or not it is. And in your case, it certainly sounds like it is. But I would imagine that radiologist, uh, every single thing they see coming in the door or virtually every single one of the recs has urgent. Probably. I understand that, Patty. Yeah, I know you do. came from a specialist. And I worked in the medical field for 37 years. Right. This came from a specialist, and this explained on the bottom profound hearing loss. Right. For someone of her age, she's 30. Sad state of affairs. So, are you going to proceed with trying to get outfitted with some hearing aids in the interim? You know what I'll probably end up having to do, Patty, and it's sad to say, I'll probably end up having to take her to a private clinic outside the province to have it done. And that's pretty sad. Yeah, I, I completely understand. Completely. And not that you have a pile of money and you can afford to do that, but your health have to come first. And it's pretty sad when, when you have to t- take that route. And if people are, you know, some people might be lucky enough to be able to even consider it, while yeah, a ton of people have, it doesn't even enter their mind because they simply can't afford it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But it has to enter your mind when it's your health and when it's something that is this necessary. Absolutely. I, I just don't know what else to do. Where else do you turn? I wouldn't Where know. I wish I did. To? So, I mean... How quickly did her hearing deteriorate? So she went from some hearing loss to profound. In what sort of time frame? She, she it's, it's happened, uh, and we're not even sure, but, like, she's had some hearing loss, but, but it was, like, minimum, almost like it started like a tinnitus. The ears were ringing. Mm-hmm. And then I found that I would have to repeat myself so often to her when I'd ask her a question or anything, and she couldn't hear. She honestly couldn't hear. And then you got to look at, consider it as well, Patty. It's hard enough to get into a specialist. But then when you get into the specialist and they write something of that nature, it, it did come from a specialist. It didn't come from a GP. Okay, I understand. 
Well, I don't know if it's going to be uh, how quick or what cost is associated with getting an MRI done at a private clinic somewhere. And that, you know, that's going to lead to more political conversations about expansion of private offerings. Uh, It it just is. Yeah, absolutely. Because if there's this much of a backlog in our own province, why isn't there something opened up? At least if you could get the money together to pay for the cost of the MRI, you wouldn't have to take a flight to get it. Yeah, there is a so-called, what people like to call, slippery slope conversation inside of private offerings. Now, there's lots of private in healthcare already, but we all have to wonder aloud where it becomes more of a problem than a help. But, Jackie, I wish you and your daughter well, and please do indeed keep us in the loop. If you decide to go, I'd be curious about how quickly that can happen, some associated costs, so we can float Mm -hmm. it as part of the conversation. Sure. Thanks, Patty. I uh, wish you good luck. Thanks, Jackie. Thanks. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. Final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Daryl, you're on the air. Hi. How are you doing today? Very well. How about you? Great. Uh, well, I wouldn't say great. It's been a traumatic couple of days. Um, I want to call to report on the incident that was posted on your website a few days ago at Tuesday morning, about 2.30 in the morning, about a weapon-related call. Okay, which uh, one is this? This would have been um, where a guy was taken into custody for breaches of court orders because they were questioning about a weapon. Um, I was the one that called 911. Um, what happened was, I can't give names or anything because the names aren't published, but um, a guy came to my friend's residence and um, my sister, well, I can say my sister, her boyfriend had to go down and see what was on the go and it was someone he knew and this guy was intoxicated and stuff like that. So um, he had to get him over across the street back to his place. But along the way going across the street um, in the driveway, he pulled out um, a weapon, which was a gun, and started um, shooting um, at a cat. And I explained that over the phone, um, what happened. And um, they responded about, I'd say, 12 police cars with their weapons drawn and um, everything like that. And it was very frustrating because um, the police wouldn't come talk to me, wouldn't take my statement. I was trying to explain to him, you know, exactly what happened. You know, I, I saw it with my own two eyes, and I just felt like I was being treated with, I don't know, like like disrespect kind of thing, like because I was in shock. I was traumatized because of what I seen, and they found the weapon. Um, um, and so I don't know what happened after that. I know the guy who got arrested for the breaches. I know he ha- had a curfew, but I didn't know that until after I called 911. But I had no choice because there was a weapon deployed and, and shot off. So um, they're saying the guy ran when they questioned him. I absolutely agree he shouldn't have. But what they didn't get was that this guy was trying to help this guy who had the gun to get him home away from the residence before anybody got hurt. But why this guy is pulling out a gun 2.30 in the morning and firing it off um, in 
in the street is just bizarre. And the fact that that was not even mentioned and a weapon was recovered and all that is what really upsets me and frustrates me. It's just how the police interact with the community when situations like this happen. Like, I was just totally... So, just so I'm clear, the shots were fired at a cat or at whatever. You called 911 and the police did exactly what? Nothing. They wouldn't even talk to me. I was trying to explain to them. I said, you have the wrong guy. I said, I can identify the guy who had the gun. I was trying to tell my story. I know the other guy had a curfew. I didn't know it at the time until the police told me, so that's why he was taken in. And they were trying to question him about the gun. He probably took off because he was nervous because he had a curfew, but he lived on the same street that he had a curfew. But I'm trying to make a point is he never had no gun. The other guy was the one out with the gun. And the guy that had the gun, he was trying to get him home. So it was just like nobody would come and talk to me. And I was like in a hysterical um, panic, I guess, anxiety mode because of what I witnessed. And they didn't come and talk to me. It was just as if they were more concerned about the guy who had breached his curfew more than about the guy who was shooting off a firearm in the middle of the street and that was unfortunate and it got me upset and I'm still ticked off because nobody nobody talked to me or anything about it. It was just like they weren't concerned. They found the weapon. That's it. it was just, that was pretty much it. They took the other guy in custody but the guy that was shooting off they did, not, nothing happened. Yeah. And it upset me. Well I get it. You would think that shots fired would be right up against the very top of the list of concerns for residents police alike because I mean I shouldn't have to explain that any further shots fired is a pretty dangerous thing uh, so I don't know why that would be the case you know, it seems to me that the police talk about it a lot publicly about the concerns about the amount of weapons on the street the number of serious crimes that are being committed with weapons today versus years past we've heard from Crown Prosecutor on this one, Stats Canada on this one. We've heard directly from police on this one. And, you know, big big news about the couple of gun seizures that include some of these ghost guns. So you would think guns are top of mind for concerns for police, obviously, and reflecting the concerns of citizens. I'll give you the last word, Daryl, before we run out of time and have to say goodbye. The last word is they didn't report that they found a gun and they didn't report that they had a call of shots fired. And, and how they treat people like myself who call in trying to protect you know the neighborhood and stuff and who witnesses stuff like that they have no sympathy for people i felt i was treated with nothing but disrespect because i was in panic mode and shock because i was traumatized they didn't seem to care about any of that it was more about oh this guy had a breach let's just take him in hey you guys just recovered a gun aren't you going to question why you recovered a gun yeah aren't you going to question why the call came in and the shots that were fired like aren't you going to get a statement on the witness who saw everything happen they did nothing they didn't seem concerned whatsoever about the gun they were more concerned about the other guy who had a breach because of his curfew i mean it was pretty frustrating and i'm still upset because nobody talked to me about it that's why i wanted to call in and update that story because they're only giving a little count of what actually happened well i'm sure the newsroom has heard this and we'll do some follow-up with the rnc to get a complete picture on that story uh thanks for making time i'm sorry this happened to uh, daryl but appreciate the the call this morning 
Okay, thanks, Daddy. You have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, that one's a weird one. And the newsroom probably will and follow up on that. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.